Hey everybody, Worldwide Jew here, and today we're going to be talking about Kurdish Jews, a distinct group of Jews from Kurdistan, which is an unrecognized country and has no international recognition and is roughly in the, in, in the areas of some parts of Iran, Syria, Turkey, and Iraq. With the presence of the Kurdish Jews in the Kurdish part, part of being, uh, in the, with the presence of the Kurdish Jews in the Kurdish part of Iraq being the most numerous, I had a hard time finding information on Kurdish Jews and how. Kurdish Jews and I have to scour the internet but I found some information and the information that I found is what I'll be sharing with you with you to you the listener on this episode of the podcast I'll be talking about the uniqueness of the Kurdish Jews in the next in the, in the next section also no one talks about Kurdish Jews literally no one and sometimes they're matched together with Iraqi Jews and Mizrahi Jews I've never seen a post in general anywhere on Kurdish Jews unless you literally type Kurdish Jews in the search bar on the internet and only then you'll get results on Kurdish Jews or if you read a book on Kurdish Jews. You know, like, I literally cannot find anything. Like, not, no one talks about Kurdish Jews. Like, you know, it's not in social media. You know, I don't talk, no one ever has mentioned it. You know, like, I only found it when I literally typed Kurdish Jews into the search bar. The sections of this episode are as follows. General information on Kurdish Jews and there's, like, a lot of it because I couldn't really find, like, a lot, like, you know, there's a lot of information I found on the internet about them, so a lot uh, the general information section is probably going to be the longest one so far. Uniqueness of the Kurdish Jews, languages of the Kurdish Jews, history of the Kurdish Jews, Kurdish Jewish food, Kurdish, Jew, Kurdish Jews in Kurdistan, and the diaspora, and the relationship to Israel, Kurdish Jews in Israel, and my personal experiences and conclusions on Kurdish Jews. So I'm going to be going up till uh, I think, the end of the languages section, so that's part one, and then part two is going to start with the history. So, anyways, here we go. Jews of Kurdistan, Yehudei Kurdistan, are the ancient Eastern Jewish communities inhabiting the region known as Kurdistan, roughly covering parts of northwestern Iran, northern Iraq, uh, northeastern Syria, and southeastern Turkey. Jews of Kurdistan, Kurdin Shiu, are the ancient, East, ancient Eastern Jewish communities inhabiting the region known as Kurdistan in northern Mesopotamia, roughly covering parts of Iran, northern Iraq, Syria, and eastern Turkey. Their clothing and culture is similar to neighboring neighboring Kurdish Muslims and Christian Assyrians, and extremely uh, close genetic uh, proximity of Jewish communities and non-Jewish Middle Eastern populations have been observed in several DNA studies. In 2001, a team of German, in, German Indian and Israeli scientists published uh, the results of their research on Y-chromosome polymorphism that showed that Jews and Kurds are close genetic relatives. The Jews and Kurds, according to the research, have, have more common, have common ancestors who resided in northern Mesopotamia about 4,000 years ago. The Kurdish Jews, though found genetically close close to the Muslim Kur Kurdish neighbors, were still were still closely related to Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jewish groups, supporting the hypothesis of a distant com hypothesis of a distant com common ancestry, rather than a recent contribution of Judaism, Judaism converts to this Jewish community. Documented conversion to Judaism occurred in the area during the Classic period among the ruling class of the Parthian clan client kingdom of Adiaben. Among the Jewish communities, the, cl the closest genetic bond to the Muslim Kurds was found among the Ashkenazi Jews, though the sequences are, were still distinguishable. Kurdish Jews, a largely rural people, have lived in the mountains and the plains of Kurdistan since time immemorial. They've been geographically isolated throughout much of their history and are thought to have retained some old Jewish traditions. Their Neo-Aramaic language is a survival Old Aramaic, which was the dominant language in the Middle East before being gradually superseded by Arabic after the Islamic conquest of the area during the 7th century AD. Most of the Kurdish Jews emigrated to Israel during 1950 to 1951. Kurdistan is a 
geographic ethnic term referring to a large territory about 960 kilometers long and 190 to 240 kilometers wide in South and Central Southwest Asia, divided at present among Iraq, Turkey, and Iran. The Kurds are a nation without a politically recognized homeland, in spite of their continuous struggle for centuries to have one. Kurdistan consists of mostly a rugged chain of mountains, with the exception of some lowland areas on the, on the fringes. The climate is characterized by heavy snows during the winter, followed by spring rains and heavy runoff down the, slo down the slopes, creating rapid torrents and swollen rivers. This combination of rugged terrain and harsh weather makes the re region an inaccessible and almost impenetrable fortress. Hence, day-to-day -day control by remote governments has always been tenuous at best. Kurdistan is consequently served as a refuge for various religiously and politically dissident groups throughout the ages. According to their old tradition, Kurdish Jews are the descendants of the Jews exiled from Israel and Judea by the Assyrian kings. Several scholars who have studied the Jews of Kurdistan tended to consider their tradition at least partly valid, and one may safely assume that the Kurdish Jews include, among others, some descendants of the ancient Jewish exiles, the so-called Lost Ten the Lost Ten Tribes. Christianity was successful in this area partly because it was inhabited by Jews. Christianity, which usually spread in existing Jewish communities, was accepted in this region without difficulty. The first substantial evidence of Jewish settlements in Kurdistan is found in the reports of two Jewish travelers to Kurdistan in the 12th century. Their accounts indicate that the, the existence of a large, well-established and, pro, and prosperous Jewish community in the area. It seems that, as a result of the persecutions and the fear of approaching crusaders, many Jews from Syria and Palestine had fled to Babylonia and Kurdistan. The Jews of Mosul, the largest town, with a Jewish population of about 7,000, 7, enjoyed some degree of autonomy, and the local, local exilar, community, community leader, had his own jail. Of the taxes paid by the Jews, half were given to him and half to the non-Jewish governor. One account concerns David Alroy, the Messianic leader from Kurdistan who rebelled, albeit unsuccessfully, against the king of Persia and planned to redeem the Jews from exile and lead them to Jerusalem. The Jews had, albeit at, quite, at times quite limited, Cultural tribes with Jews of the larger urban centers of Iraq, Mosul, Baghdad, Iran, and Turkey, and especially with the land of Israel, Palestine. Many Kurdish Jews had relatives who sought employment in, in the larger urban centers. Individuals, families, and sometimes all the residents of a village had been emigrating to the land of Israel since the beginning of the 20th century. These trickles culminated in the mass emigration of the entire Jewish community of Iraqi Kurdistan during 1950-1951. In general, living conditions were, were meager and unstable. Many of the Kurdish Jews were farmers, shepherds, rafters, and loggers, occupations almost unknown in other Jewish communities in the east or the west. In, the, in past centuries, there were more villages populated entirely, entirely by Jews than there were later. Some villages, remained, some villages remained entirely Jewish until the mass emigration to Israel. In large centers, Jews traded in grain, cotton, wool, furs, cattle, gum, gallnuts, from which ink was made, sesame, dry fruits, and tobacco. Many had vineyards and orchards. Jewish artisans included weavers, dyers, shoemakers, tailors, and a few silversmiths and goldsmiths. In the 12th century, for security reasons and owing to improvement of transportation, the use of motorized vehicles, many Jews. Oh, 20th century. In the use in the 20th century, for security reasons and owing to the improvements of transportation, i.g., uh, for example, the use of motorized vehicles, many Jews as well as others gradually left the villages in the hardships of farming. Moving to urgent urban centers, they looked for an easier life as shopkeepers, merchants, and butchers. The towns with their large synagogues and numerous religious functionaries were more suited to Jewish life and provided greater security against attacks by nomadic tribes and brigands, as well as, as relief from natural calamities of the rugged areas. A common sight in larger towns such as Zaho were poor peddlers traveling in companies of two or more, riding donkeys and mules and selling certain groceries, tea and sugar, and notions, needles, buttons, and thread. 
This occupation was extremely dangerous because the routes were often infested with robbers. Many lives were lost at the hands of Kurdish brigands. Another dangerous occupation among the poor was rafting and logging. About 70 families in Zaho made a meager living from transporting logs used for construction and carpentry on the Torriental rivers. Other common skills were spinning, most, done mostly by women, weaving of light rugs and clo clothing, and dyeing of woolens. Weaving was, the, was, co was common in the urban centers as well as the rural areas. In general, the occupation of the Kurdish Jews were typical of a rural or small-town society, and therefore few wealthy merchants were found among them. Money in, in general was scarce in Kurdistan, and so, so, items were, so were items of luxury. Much of the trading was, by the way, a barter. For example, shoes could be exchanged for chickens, notions for farm produce. Some Kurdish Jews, after the emigration to Israel, continued to work as farmers in rural areas around Jerusalem and the Jordan Valley. Of course, of those who settled in cities, principally Jerusalem, many women work as maids. And most men who worked first at hard manual labor as porters masons and stonecutters. A few who started as common laborers in the building trade are now among the wealthiest people in Israel. They own luxurious hotels, restaurants, and supermarkets. Most of the, much of the construction business in Jerusalem was, and still is, dominated by Kurdish Jews. Some have been prominent in the Israeli army or become high government officials or members of city councils. Throughout Kurdistan, marriage between cousins, or at least within the tribal camp, is preferred, and the marriage within the, with that definitely wouldn't fly today. A marriage with the father's brother's daughter is regarded as ideal. Such marriages are nevertheless accompanied by the payment of a bride price, a substantial sum of money to to the father of the bride. These customs were prevalent among Kurdish Jews as well. This, uh, the level of the level of spiritual life in any society depends largely on its physical security, economic conditions, population size, and communication, as well as contact with other societies. In this case, the Jews of Kurdistan, all the, in, the, in the case of the Jews of Kurdistan, all these factors are mostly negative. Life in the area was often precarious. It was common for population remnants to migrate from place to place because of natural disasters, floods, plagues, and destruction, or devastation by tribal, cha by tribal chieftains. The Jewish population in any one loca locality would often dwindle from 700 or, seven, or several thousand to a few families. Yet, during some short, less troubled periods of relative security, few, few centers of learning did flourish. The Kurdish Jews, as, as in any traditional rural society, were deeply religious, observing what they knew of Jewish law quite strictly. Although many could not read Hebrew prayers, almost everyone attended services in synagogue, not only on the Sabbath and Jewish holidays, but also weekdays. All, all Jewish holidays were observed and celebrated with great joy. In spite of the general preoccupation with daily routine practices, the moral principles and customs of Judaism were learned, were learned as well, being transmitted orally from generation to generation, often through the sermons in the synagogue. The sermon played a, mo a, a most important role in the religious and uh, national edification edification of isolated communities such as Kurdistan, where books were rare and the rate of illiteracy was high. The sermon included tales and legends of the life and deeds of the patriarchs, ancient kings and heroes, prophets and rabbis, mystics, and ordinary pious men and women, all carefully selected to, to fit the particular audience. The legends were not only fascinating in themselves, but also taught ethical principles, repentance from misconduct, and steadfast devotion to the faith of the fathers. The miracles and salvations so often mentioned in these sermons gave the Jewish community much comfort, as well as the strength to endure the hardships of daily life in exile and maintain hope of redemption in the coming of Mashiach. The ties to the land of Israel, the land of the roots, were indicated in religious literature and in various customs. For example, attributing to the biblical names of lo two localities in Kurdistan, a crown for the local town Arka, calling Zaho the Jerusalem of Kurdistan.
all Jewish dead were placed in their graves with their feet facing the direction of Jerusalem, probably to have hastened their arrival on the day's re resurrection. The religious practices of the Kurdish Jews included, in common with other Middle Eastern and North African Jewish and non-Jewish communities, the visitation and veneration of local shrines or tombs assumed to be the burial grounds of holy persons. Like those of other rural societies, the arts of the Kurdish Jews were, mo were mostly practical crafts, weaving various types of carpet, producing woolen texts, and knitting items such as socks, gloves, and hats, silk embroidered scarves, and handkerchiefs. People could not afford to buy new clothes, would simply dye the old ones in strong, bright colors, such as indigo and crimson, to give them a new look. A few people wore gold and silversmiths. During weddings and other festivities, women wore gold or silver jewelry, such as nose and earrings, such as nose and earrings, necklaces, and hand and foot braces with little bells. Small children wore various types of silver pendants, along with with some with Hebrew inscriptions, as well as little gold and silver bells, to protect them from the evil eye and evil spirits. At, cel at celebration times, men would, would wear f uh, fine woolen baggy suits, a very elaborate headdress, and belts with daggers and, s and silver decorated sheets. Some old men had very fancy smoking pipes with long tubes. A few men and women excelled in the oral arts of storytelling and singing. The rich or oral folk literature provided most of the popular pastime for Kurdish Jews. Some of the best narrators of these Kurdish tales were Jewish, and they were sought after by Jewish Jews and Muslims alike. The general content of the, content of the stories was often well known to the audience, but an artistic narrator could captivate his listeners again and again. Story made the, the storyteller made the story come to life by gesticulating and making facial expressions, by changing voices and producing sound effects, such as the fast running of a gazelle or the galloping of a horse. The, stor the, stor the stories varied in length and in subject matter, from serious heroic adventures or misfortunes, tragic love stories, and imaginative moralistic tales to humor humorous, erotic, supernatural, or entertaining an anecdotes. Sometimes the narration would extend over several long winter nights. The narrator also stopped stopping at a critical point to leave the audience in suspense until the next evening. So, like the old the OG cliffhanger. Uh, singing was common during work especially during group work such as week grinding and celebrations and during mourning periods. Women excelled at, as chanters at funerals, moving mourners to loud weeping. Those with pleasant professional voices sang for an audience, but, um, but almost sang everyone sang anywhere, walking down the street or when alone in the countryside. Singing was usually unaccompanied by musical instruments, except during wedding celebrations and other occasions for dancing, in which case a wooden flute and a large kettle drum were played. One of the main... One of the main uh, problems in the history and the historiography of the Jews of Kurdistan was the lack of written history and the lack of documents and historical records. This is because the native language of the Kurdish Jews, mostly Aramaic as well as other languages, does not have a written script. In turn, this makes it impossible to write down information pertaining to the Kurdish Jews because the only way you can write it down is if they speak their language and someone else translated, trans, translates it into a language that has a written script that you can write down so you can preserve it. It, like, you know, the Kurdish, you know, stories and Jewish way of life. During the 1930s, a German-Jewish ethnographer, Eric, er Eric Brauer, began interviewing members of the community. His assistant, Raphael Patai, published the results in, of his research in Hebrew. This book, Yehudi Kurdistan, Mechar Ethnographique, was translated into English in the 1990s. Israeli scholar Mordechai Zaken wrote a PhD dissertation and a book using written archival and oral sources that trace and reconstruct the relationships between the, the 
the Jews and the Kurdish masters or chief teams known as the Agas. He interviewed 56 Kurdish Jews altogether, conducting hundreds of interviews, thus saving their memories from being lost forever. He, inter he interviewed Kurdish Jews from mainly six towns, Zaho, Arqa, Amadiya, Dahuk, Suleimania, and Shino, Ushuno, and Ushonavia, as well as from dozens of villages, mostly in the region of Badinan. His study reveals new sources, reports, and vivid tales that form a new set of historical records on the Jews and and the tribal Kurdish society. His PhD thesis was commented by members of the PhD Judicial Committee along with the book, upon which it has been translated into several Middle Eastern languages, including Arabic, Sarani, Kurmanji, as well as French. Every Sukkot, the Jews of Israel gather to dance and eat delicious food and share stories about their homeland, the historic Kurdistan, now divided between Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Iraq. In the Sarahani festival. The Sarahani festival was th historically celebrated around time, springtime and is similar to Nauru's festival which has, which has Zoroastrian or origins and is celebrated by diverse communities in Western and Central Asia to mark the beginning of spring and the blossoming of nature after winter. Sarahani t uh, celebrations take place in various cities in Israel with the biggest gatherings in Jerusalem drawing around 13,000 attendees. For generations, Jews in the Kurdish land celebrate their own unique holiday, called Sarahani, during Passover. It mirrored the non-Jewish holiday, Nawaz, and featured singing competitions and outdoor picnics. However, when, the, when, the, when Jews from Kurdish lands moved to Israel, some worried that the Sarahani was getting confused with another Passover time festival, Mimuna. Mimuna originated with Moroccan Jews and became very popular in Israel. It was celebrated the day after Passover, Passover concludes and is marked by visiting friends and neighbors for friendly meals in open houses. In the 1970s, Kurdish Jews began celebrating the Sarahani during the Autumn Jewish Festival of Sukkot instead. You know, not to confuse it with, um, you know, Mimona, because I, I'm guessing that was more popular, so they're just like, yeah, you know, we're just gonna, you know, celebrate our unique holiday on Sukkot instead, because, you know, I guess it's their, like, cultural, 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 tradition so i guess like basically most of them live there so they can you know they can kind of change it because you know the if the leaders of the community say so you know they can do that today one of the largest sarahani festivals is held each year in jerusalem drawing over 10,000 participants for kurdish jewish food music and storytelling in recent years non-jewish kurds have even traveled to jerusalem jerusalem's vibrant sarahani festival from iraq europe and elsewhere in 2013 one syrian kurd now living in the Netherlands visited Jerusalem's Sarahani festival and explained to Israeli journalists that even though she's not Jewish, hearing the Kurdish music and watching people wearing traditional Kurdish dress made her feel at home. We feel we are part of Israel, she explained about her fellow Kurds at the festival, who all received a warm welcome when visiting the Jewish state. While these foods still survive into the younger generations, other, custom, other, cu other customs have disappeared. The Kurdish community get, once gathered firewood to celebrate Korma Bikeh, a, a festivity similar to Lagba Omer. On the last day of Hanukkah, when, when an eightfold candle sparkled in, in the night, a large bonfire would be, let, would be lit in the courtyard. This was not the, the cook family meal, but for an almost voodoo-like ceremony. Using sticks and rags, children would constru construct a small doll which represented the in, infamous Antiochus, the leader of the Seleucids and per persecutor of the Jews. When it, the fire reaches Apex, they would, rich, they would rip off the cloth beard and throw it into the flames while singing Antiochus, Antiochus. The adults, meanwhile, would, bur would burn the remaining Hanukkah wick and say, The small candles of the Jews is a sign of the, co of the coming of winter. Today, there are around 200,000 Jews living in Israel, coming from Arab, Persian, Turkish, and Kurdish lands, with the largest migration having taken place between 1940 and, and 1950. Currently, there are only... A 
around 500 uh, Kurdish Jewish families living in what is modern Iraqi Kurdistan. But however, I'm not sure of this, and I can't seem to get any reliable sources if there even are uh, Kurdish Jews that still live in Kurdistan. Kurdistan is a cultural, geocultural, ge historic region in which the Kurdish people form the majority of the population. The modern use refers to the refers to the southeastern Turkey, northern Kurdistan, or or Bakuri Kurdistani in Kurdish, northern Syria, western Kurdistan or Rahava, northern Iraq, south, southern Kurdistan or Basura Kurdistani, and northwestern Iran, eastern Kurdistan or Rohada Kurdistani. Through nationalist Kurdish organizations, though national Kurdish organizations have tried to gain independence or a certain level of autonomy, especially throughout the 20th century, Iraqi Kurdistan, known as the Autonomous Iraqi, Iraqi Kurdistan Region, is the only autonomous Kurdish region today. The Kurds are national allies of Israel and have, no, and have been so for the past six, de six decades. The ties between the two groups are historical, political, and economical. More than 200,000 to 300,000 of Kurdish Jews Jews of Kurdish origin exist today and mostly reside in Israel. Many Kurdish Jews were among the first Jews to return to Israel in the 18, 1890s. Recent research has also found that Jews and Kurds share more genetic connections than Jews and Arabs. While the Kurds and Israelis share common interests, many Jewish people are sympathetic to, the, to, the, to Kurds due to the two people's similar history of persecution. Professor Ofra Benigio, head of the Kurdish Studies Program at Tel Aviv University, claimed genocides against Kurds should be recognized because the Kurds are a people that have also suffered terrors of chemical weapons, and Israel cannot mean a roof when it comes to the Kurds who suffer the same fate. Before Netanyahu released a statement announcing humanitarian assistance, several high-ranking Israeli reservists de delivered a petition to Netanyahu last week, calling on the government to provide humanitarian and intelligence and military assistance to the Kurds. This petition was provoked by the recent Turkish aggression and also highlighted the, the moral obligation some Jews felt to help, um, uh, feel to help helping the Kurds. We, as Israeli and Israelis and Jews, must not, must not stand by when we see another nation abandoned by its allies and left defenseless. Um, the petition uh, stated by Mayor Yair Fink reads, We remember the, very well the blood of our people. What happens when the nations in the world abandon the fate of a people? Most of the history and relations between the Kurds and the Israelis described focus on Iraqi Kurds. Although it is the Syrian Kurds that are actively being persecuted by Turkey, the Iraqi Kurds will still be harmed by Turkish aggression in regards to their economy, their security, and will result in a refugee crisis. Furthermore, while Kurds are split among various political parties and have, have their internal divisions, they still see themselves as one nation yearning for its own stake actively work to support each other. Perhaps the Kurdish, popular Kurdish phrase, no friends but the mountain, should be meant to no, no friends but the mountain, and Israel. Israel is now home to more than 200,000 Jews of Kurdish descent. The number of, of Jews remaining, remaining in Kurdistan is estimated to be in the hundreds. The Kurdish population of the United States is not, not Jewish Kurds, but just Kurdish. Uh, the, Kurdish the Kurdish population of the United States is estimated at 40,000 with perhaps half in the national area. The number in the Atlanta area is estimated at several hundred, and I'm guessing the the Jewish population, the Kurdish population in the United States is mostly non-Jews, as I said before. Uh, or basically, like, no, there's no Kurdish Jews, basically, in the United States. Basically not. Um, there's only, like, a few. Kurdistan has also been the home to... Uh, the, to a remarkable and often thriving Jewish community for nearly 3,000 years. Many villages and towns featured a great deal of mutual respect and friendship, and some villages were inhabited entirely by Jews. Kurdistan is a region in the Middle East, divided among three countries, Turkey, Iraq, 
Iran, and also Syria as well, but I don't know why it says three. Um, the majority of the Muslim population of Kurdistan lives in Turkey, another part in Iran, and the smallest part in Iraq. In contrast, the Jews of Kurdistan, until the Great Exodus in 1950 to 1951, mainly lived in the Iraqi region, with 146 communities, some in the Iranian region, 19, Iranian region, 19 communities, and only a few in Turkey, with 11 communities. There are also a few Jews in the Syrian region and other places, 11 communities, with, with 11 communities being the, those places. There are no accurate statistics on the Jews of Kurdistan. It has been estimated before the establishment of the State of Israel, there were between 20,000 and 30,000 Jews living there. Kurdish Jews also lived in the Diyala province of Iraq, especially in the town of Khachin. The number of Jews varying between 1,689 in 1920, 2,252 in 1932, and 2,851 in 1947. Were headed by Nasim, who imposed their authority on the public and collected special taxes. The Nasi were also called the Shotera, officer of the law, or Sar, minister. The Khahanim were also sub subordinate to them. Their, this position was abolished during the 19th century. From the beginning of the 16th century, there were several uh, rabbis of Adoni or Barazani, um, Mizrahi Duga, and Harari families. Some of them practiced. Uh, practical Kabbalah, and various legends were woven among, uh, around them. About 30 uh, Kurdish Patanim uh, are known from the from among the ha inhabitants of Barazan, Mosul, Ahmadiyya, Harir, Nabsin, Zaho, and other places. They wrote religious and secular poems in Hebrew and Aramaic. 54 of them were published by Abraham ben Jacob in his book, Kihilot Yehudei Kurdistan. The, the style of Jewish music in Kurdistan is, con is conditioned by the multinational and multilingual character of the country, in which its long history scarcely ever aimed at cultural centralization, and thus helped to preserve the musical dialects of, of the Iraqi, Ar Iranian, Syrian, and Turkish regions of the area. The foremost feature of Jewish song in Kurdistan is the unique melodic style of the renditions of Aramaic, of Aramaic text, which is distinct from the general Oriental Sephardi style used for Hebrew text. Connected with liturgical or spiritual texts, this melodic style is basically determined by the speech melody of the Aramaic language, with a tendency to proceed over long stretches of an elitony or parlando par style, especially if the text is of a narrative nature, as in the chanting of the biblical books in the local Aramaic version, or the Zohar. If the contents are poetical or meditative Kabbalistic nature, the words may be inter interrupted by long and drawn-out melismatic insertions produced by into a slow and deep vibratio, often with a curious change, change of voice timbre. A further factor of the formation of Jewish song in Kurdistan is the contact with Arabic music, Arab music, which since the early days of Islam has gradually placed old, the older music item of the Mesopotamian area, especially in the sphere of artistic urban music. Equally important for the formation of the Jewish Kurdish style of synagogue song were the bonds of the ma with the major tradition of Jewish music, foremost cantillation and Hazanut styles. They were brought in and taught by emissaries from spiritual centers of Near Eastern Judaism in the Oriental Sephardi idiom which was in itself already a synthesis and which is different from the indigenous mountain Jabali idiom. The Kurdish cantors thus tended to be musically bilingual. However, time works against the continuation of these indigenous traditions. Still, another factor of is the Kurdish folk song proper in the Kurmanji language, with its epics, ballads, and dances. 
which has been widely accepted by the Jews and synthesized with their, old, with their other singing styles. The fact that the Kurdish Jews lived as free peasants side by side with their Muslim neighbors is a, is a rare instance in the history of the diaspora life and has doubtlessly contributed to the acceptance of the host culture's lore and song. Summarizing this, the distribution of languages and musical structures, which exist even within the boundaries of, of the one and main region of Iraqi Kurdistan, follow, following, the following divisions become uh, apparent in which the distinction of language is congruent with the distinctiveness of musical style. Hebrew, for the liturgical music of the synagogue. Targum, i.e. Aramaic, for the religious and para-liturgical music of the hater, yeshiva, and some rituals serving for the study vernacularization and paraphrasing of the sacred texts. Arabic for the secular songs taken over from popular and artistic urban music, serving per purely for so purely social for purely social gatherings, and four, Kurdish Kermanji for the folk tradition of heroic epics, ballads, and dances of the rural milieu. The he the Hebrew and Aramaic idiom idioms um, belong to the cycle of the liturgical year and religious life cycle. And the Arabic and Kurdish idioms belong to the social folk social folk level functions. In the abundance of uh, structures, summing of in the abundance of structures, some main classes of music deserve particular attention. First is the chanting of the Bible, which has always been the nucleus of all creative imagination in Jewish music and its main contributions to the world's world music culture. Of its basic forms is the chanting of psalms in a kind of speech melody oscillating. Uh, around an imaginary tone axis, which closely follows the poetical structure of the two half verses, marking the, the main divisive points with definite and distinct melodic turn, turns. The elaborate system of the Mesoratic accents is not utilized, and it, and it is likely that an earlier version has been preserved here. Similar archaic trends can be observed in the melodic patterns of the cantillation of the biblical prose books, which, elect, which suggest a pre or Extra Mesoratic Jabali traditions for the mode of the prophets. The most indigenous part of the cursed Jewish song tradition is the paraphrasing of biblical stories in epic form in the Aramaic vernacular. Its melodic frame reveals many common traits with the cantillation of the Pentateuch. For much of Kurdish history, Jews were an integral part of life. Persecuted in much of the Middle East, Jewish towns and villages flourished in, in Kurdish lands. Queen Helene's remarkable journey is recorded in the writings of the, of, by the Roman Jewish historian Josephus in the Talmud. Queen Helene and her husband, King Manabaz of Adibin, were regularly encountered Jewish merchants passing through the land. lands. Queen Helene was so impressed with, the, with Jewish life that she hired a teacher to tutor, tutor her in Jerusalem. After King Monobaz died, his son Azatis took his place on the throne. Like his mother, Queen Helene, Azatis was also interested in Judaism, and the pair learned all they could, from first from a Jewish trader named Hanania, and then from a rabbi named Elazar of Galilee. Eventually, the royal family converted to Jerusalem and encouraged their subjects to do the same. They sent many gifts from the, to the land of Israel, including beautiful golden candelabras and, and goblets for the temple in Jerusalem, and shipments of emergency food during a famine. When Roman forces battled Jews, Queen Helene sent soldiers to help their Jewish brethren. In a letter, uh, Asnat, uh, who was a famous, I'll be explaining about her later, but she was a famous uh, a Kurdish Jew in the uh, 17th century and 18th century, described the intense education of her childhood. I never left the entrance to my house or went outside. I was like a prince of, 
princess of Israel, I grew up on the laps of scholars, anchored to my father's blessed memory. Asnat married a fellow scholar, Rabbi Jacob Mizrahi, and had an unusual clause in her marriage contract. Asnat was never to be expected to perform any housework that so that she could vote herself entirely to learning Torah. After her husband died, Asnat continued to run the, the family yeshiva, which was then plagued by financial problems. Asnat wrote a famous prayer, Gogaga Lezion, or Logging for Zion, which allowed many Jews to put their deepest hopes and desire into words of prayer. Accounts vary. The, the Jewish explorer Benjamin of Tuladea wrote that he was murdered by the local sultan after encouraging Jews to rise up against the rulers. Some accounts maintain that Alroy was killed in sleep by his father-in-law. After his death, some Jews falsely revered Alroy as Messiah, even though his grand plan was to come to the aid of Jerusalem's Jews had utterly failed. Kurdish Jews particularly revere the Jewish prophet Nahum, who wrote about the end of the Assyrian Empire and its capital. And capital city Nineveh. Each, each year during the holiday of the, hol the holiday Shavuot, Jews traveled to Nahum's tomb in modern-day Iraq, staging the elaborate staging elaborate holiday celebrations there. Many of the synagogues in Iraqi Kurdistan were ancient and bore the names of the prophets, such as Ezekiel, Elijah, and others. It was customary to build synagogues on riverbanks or other sources of water, and to surround the courtyards with a high column patio. In the summer, the courtyard was used for prayers. In the center of the synagogue was a place platform bima on which were the readers. There was no special place for women who, ra who rarely came to prayer. According to the oral tradition, recorded by several travelers to the country, Kurdistani Jews are the descendants of Jews exiled from Israel and Judea by Assyrian kings and referred to the prophet Isaiah as those who were lost in the land of Assyria. Deportation to Iraq of, of Babylonians... Uh, oh. Deportation to Iraq of Babylonians to Jews... Uh, to Babylon, central Iraq, happened 150 years after deportation to Assyria, and uh, um, who uh, the uh, the Babylonians uh, marched the Judeans from South Israel to proper urban centers of Babylon and Nippur. Historically, Kurdistan had many Jewish communities who, according to tradition, lived in Mesopotamia since the Assyrian Empire brought them there. The Bible references Jewish relocation in Kurdish areas, saying the king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria, settled them in Hala on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and the city of the Meds. Throughout the centuries, the Jews of Kurdistan rarely lived in peace and tranquility with, their, with, the, with the Muslims. Their lives were subject to major political and economic instability, since they were frequently forced to move suddenly or pay huge taxes for their protection. Although I'm saying I'm probably not Kurdish Muslims, but like you know, like um, you know, like Muslims from outside. On the other hand, their geographic isolation throughout three thousand uh, years allowed them to be spared the stormy periods that affected other nations as well as the Jews. This isolation also helped to preserve the distinctive religious, social, and cultural characteristics of the Jewish communities in Kurdistan, though it concomitantly cut them off from the centers of Jewish society for most of their history. Thus, while it was the only place in the Jewish world where Aramaic remained the living language, Kurdistan hosted a population with little knowledge of Judaism, though they religiously practiced the few Jewish customs and misvot passed on from previous generations. Though in, pure, in certain periods of, relatively, of relative prosperity, Jewish, Jewish learning Flourish. Illiteracy was common. Only the leaders of the community and and few others were were literate. The country's harsh geographic and climate climatic conditions also contributed to the establishment of the unique economy economic structure of Kurdish Jewry's small rural communities, which were the only ones in the Jewish world that maintained traditional farming as a major source of livelihood. Although Kurdish Jews spoke Aramaic within their own community, in commerce within the larger society they spoke Kurdish. Many aspects of Kurdish and Jewish life. And culture became so intertwined that some of the most popular folk stories accounting for uh, Kurdish 
ethnic origins connects them with the Jews. The, Kur the Kurds are a patriarchal society, yet the Kurdish Jewish woman enjoys much more freedom than her Jewish sisters in other traditional Jewish communities. She is far more independent than her counterparts among Kurdish, Turkish, Ira Iranian, or Iraqi Muslim women. The relationship between husband and wife is much more relaxed than in other communities. Jewish women worked in the field with their husbands and rarely had to cover their face with a veil. Though the superior-inferior relationship existed in any as in, and is in any patriarchal society, Jew Jewish-Kurdish men treated women with great respect due to the women's contribution to the wealth and hard work of the extended family. Kurdish Jews did not differ in their clothing from the rest of the population. The men wore turbans, circling them with colorful scarves. They wore a wide top with, with large wide sleeves, wide trousers, and a waist around their belt, a, a, and a wide belt around their waist. The women wore long striped gowns with wide scar scarf cloths on their, around their head. They decorated their arms, hands, and legs with gold and silver jewelry. Thus, their appearance and behavior, the Jews blended. Thus, in their appearance and behavior, the Jews blended completely and utterly with the local indigenous population. During celebrations of parties, there was no separation between men and women. Holding hands, they, da they danced folkloric dances together. Furthermore, though. Furthermore, though women worked very hard from morning to night, they found time to enjoy bathing together in the river, singing and joking, a kind of ritual that took many hours. I guess they didn't really know about Shomer Nagia because they're really isolated. In the 17th century, the relative freedom of Kurdish women in the community led to the ordination of the first woman, woman rabbi, as I've spoken about before, Rabbi Asnath Berzani, the daughter of the well-known Rabbi Samuel Berzani, who founded many, many Judaic schools and seminaries in Kurdistan. Uh, she was referred to as the Ta'anit, the feminine form uh, of the customary term for a Talmudic scholar. Asnath became the head of, of the prestigious Jake army at Mosul. During pregnancy, and especially during the first, a woman receives love, attention, and respect. Because a pregnant woman attempted to conceal pregnancy for reasons of modesty, she stayed indoors for, for during most of the nine months. Numerous beliefs, customs, and rituals accompanied the pregnancy. It was quite common for the woman to and her relative to seek a fortune teller in order to find out the sex of the baby. The belief was that anything... Uh, well, the belief was that anything a woman sees or feels during conception or pregnancy would influence the character of the child, its looks, behaviors, and well-being. If the pregnant woman fancied a certain food and did not get it, the baby's, food would have a, the baby's body would have a mark in the shape of that particular type of food. Therefore, all, uh, all her fancies and wishes had to be fulfilled. While a, woman as, while a woman as a rule rarely drank alcohol, they believed that if a pregnant woman drank wine, her baby would be born handsome and fair. An anxious, uh, that, okay. an anxious, an anxious pre uh, pregnant woman was made to drink water that she had been kept exposed to the roof overnight and, re and received starlight. Prior to her drinking, hot skewers were put in water to provide her with strength to overcome her fear. A pregnant woman was not allowed to go outside during a lunar eclipse because it might affect the part of the child's body that was, a, that was exposed to the eclipse and caused deformities. In the case of a woman who suffered from several miscarriages or lost many of her children, the belief that there was an evil eye or witchcraft influencing her and therefore snake skin or threads of red, green, and black, and white were round around a race while the names of certain demons were recited. There was a strong belief that performing the ceremony would ensure the birth would proceed without any problems. The birth was performed by a traditional midwife with no medical training, with the, with the help of elderly women of the family. Midwives were fully trusted and well respected by the community. If a husband dies childless, Jewish law demands that his widow marry his brother in every marriage to carry on the deceased name. If the eldest brother-in-law did not want her, his younger brother had to marry her, and if he was too young, she had to wait for him. However, this custom was not strictly observed. Usually, the Haliza zero when he was performed, releasing the widow from the levriate tie and freeing her to marry someone else. 
The birth of males was important for the preparation of the family. The birth of females evidently created tension, particularly in the husband's family, and there was a tendency for the husband to blame his wife. The birth of boys reflected the father's social status and masculinity and increased his self-esteem and self-importance. Women also preferred boys because they brought fame and elevated their status in the eyes of the family, particularly in the eyes of their husbands. The announcement of the birth of girls to the father was delayed and hushed, but the, new, the news of a, of a boy's birth was immediately passed on to the father, even if he already had many sons. The news spread very fast and in no time all the neighborhoods knew of the happy occasion. The, difference, the different responses are various, variously accounted for by referring to the various facts that there are no religious or other ceremonies accompanying the birth of a girl, that sons bring their wives into the family while girls leave the family, and that it's easier to find a, a wife for a male even if he's very old, while it's hard to find a husband for a young woman if she's about to reach the age of 20. As, uh, as she gets older, her chances of finding a husband become slimmer, so she becomes a burden on her family and in particular on the older brothers, who have to care for her. There is a saying that expresses the position of a girl. A girl is like a beautiful apple. Despite its beauty, the longer you leave it, the less tasty it becomes, and loses vitality, and, and, and in the end becomes. Uh, formerly, the father was the master of, the, of his family. Although the birth of girls was not as welcome as the birth of boys, the bride, the bride price custom, whereby the father of the bride actually received money for his daughter, as if the husband were buying her, meant that the, girl, the birth of girls was not considered a burden on the family, even though it was less desired. Girls were married at the age of 13 or 14, and boys at the age of 17. Age, beauty, and health were important attributes that increased a female's chances of, get, of attracting a husband from a good family. It was, unusually, it was highly unusual for a man to marry into a class lower than his own, and only occurred if the bride was remarkable for her beauty. A man liked to show his wealth through his wife, and this is the evidence both... <sighs> By the amount of gold with which, which, which a man covered his wife and by her by her healthy looks, a woman had to look after her jewelry and wear her gold and silver on every occasion. It was by the amount of gold he bestowed on her that a man demonstrated his love, affection, and appreciation. Usually, parents began to look for a prospective bride within their extended families. Cousin marriages were preferred among all Kurds, including the Jews. Uh, that would not fly today. If this was possible, men. If this was not possible, men sought their brides from the extended family, and most marriages were endogamous. Once the bride, right bride was found, the couple would be introduced to each other in the company of the families. Formerly, the matchmaking had to receive the consent of the father, but from interviews it appears that the father would not give his consent without his wife agreeing but to the choice. Many parents promised their daughters at a very early age, even the age of six or seven. Around, among the Iraqi and Turkish, Turkish Kurds, the bride price custom was common. Marriages were con uh, contracted after the bride price was agreed upon, and this was uh, formalized with a handshake. Once the terms of agreement of the marriage contract were decided, the caduceus ceremony was con was conducted, and the father of the bride received the bride price, money or goods, from the groom or his father. A divorced Kurdish Jewish could marry, but her bride price would be lower waived, depending on the circumstances. In the final analysis, most women could marry and have a family, something that could not be said of any of the Iraqi Jewess. In many cases, the father of the bride-to-be gave the bride price to his daughter in order to use, in order to buy material for her clothes and household goods, though formerly these had to be provided by the husband. In the event of conflict, or if the woman wished to divorce her husband without any good reason, her family had to repay the bride price. On the other hand, if a man wished to divorce his wife without an imperial reason, he could not demand the bride price, but would have to provide her for her welfare until she remarried. He also had to pay her the sum of money stipulated in Ketubah, marriage contract. As a result, many men were, who were not happy 
with uh, their wives, but still wanted to retain all the property and money they had accumulated, usually took second wives rather than divorcing the first wives. So this is an act that caused enormous tension and friction in the household, with conflicts and fights between the children of both women over the inheritance. Furthermore, the community did not encourage divorce. Usually, when a man wished to divorce his wife, the two parties would get together and attempt to settle the conflict before approaching the rabbi. If this was not successful, they go with an influential member of the community whose opinions they valued and who would act as the arbitrator, usually, man uh, usually managing to solve the conflict and prevent the divorce. Only if the differences between the couple cannot be, bri cannot be bridged uh, did they approach a rabbi. Very few divorces were recorded, and several of them were a result of adultery. Uh, the the, compro uh, the compro compromise for the man was to take a second wife, and for, the, and for the woman to stay married and have a roof over her head. It was not uncommon for the man's parents to buy him a wife. To buy him a wife, if both parties agreed to the terms, they performed the kedushin betrothal ceremony. This was followed a few months later by the wedding ceremony, enabling the bride to prepare her clothes and linens for the intern. It was customary for the girl to embroider all her bed linen and clothing. This began to change with the exposure to modernity, even in the period prior to the immigration to Israel. Thus, the Kedushan and marriage shown marriage were performed together, as is now customary in Israel. The wedding celebration began early on uh, Monday morning and, and continued for seven days, during which the entire community was invited to the bridegroom's house. During the first two days, the relatives came to see the bridegroom's parents. Early on Thursday morning, the bridegroom's friends arrived to be with him. And on the, on, on, on the evening of that day, the crowd marched from the house of the bridegrooms to the house of the bride's parents, to bring the bride from her parents' house to that of the groom. The decorated br bride rode on a colorfully decorated horse, accompanied by musicians, singers, and the singing crowd, all the way to her future parents-in-law. Before she entered the house, the, br the bridegroom family slaughtered a sheep as atonement for the bridegroom and the bride. From then on, the celebration began and generous hospitality was provided. After the... Uh, the, uh, this is kind of a uh, gruesome here, uh, kind of uh, you know uh, PG rated, you know uh, not PG, uh, you know like fourteen plus here, you know uh, explicit. After the wedding ceremony, both parties were anxious as to whether the couple would be able to perform the act of intercourse. While the newly reds entered the bridal chamber, everyone waited outside, eating and drinking, until it was announced that the couple has consummated the marriage. The couple was not allowed to leave the room before successfully performing the act of uh, intercourse for fear of witchcraft. Which is believed to be able, to, which is believed to be, which is believed, which is believed able uh, to prevent the newlyweds from having intercourse. Prior to the wedding ceremony, uh, adults explained to the couple, and particularly to the man, how they successfully formed the act of, uh, let's say, uh, intercourse. If the couple stayed more than a half an hour in the room, those outside would knock on the door to find out what the difficulties were. When the intercourse has successfully been performed, the bridegroom opened the door and let everyone, partic every, particularly his mother, sleep the bloody cheat. This was formulated by ululating, sing, singing, and singing and, and joyful cries of happiness, while the band while the band commenced playing. The, the 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 custom was to keep the bloody sheet as evidence of the bride's virginity and the events of the conflicts between the two families. The marriage concluded with seven days of celebration, during which the couple was not allowed to leave the house for fear of witchcraft. Gifts were presented at, at a ceremony on on the first Saturday night after the wedding night. The master of ceremonies announced to the couple the details of the donors and their presents. On the first Saturday after the uh, after the wedding, the bride hosted all her women friends for lunch and presented them with gifts. On the second weekend, she invited both families to her house. After marriage, the young couple moved in with the husband's parents, as when as was appropriate in a rural farming society whose members are poor. Living in the same household saved expenses, and all members of the extended family gathered food, particularly in the harvest period when all hands were needed. The women were responsible for all domestic duties. But most of all, she had to acknowledge her husband's superiority, accept his position as the head of the family and obey him. He was in charge of all the activities outside the domestic sphere, 
religious ceremonies and communal activities. In the home, he sat at the head of the table and was the first to receive his food, which would be the biggest portion. Although there was, a, although there was, a, there was thus a strict division of labor in the home, all the family members, including the wife, worked together in the field. The behavior characteristics of the Jews in Kurdistan were, were the result of a combination of the of traditional local customs of the indigenous population and Jewish religious laws. In this, in this society, women's needs and feelings were given some consideration, doing the part that, to the woman's contribution to the family workforce. Nevertheless, her main duties were childbearing, serving the, her husband's needs, and educating her daughters to manage household duties when they married. The British mandate did not bring socio-economic prosperity, modernity, and secularization as it did to the Iraqi urban Jews, since the Jewish Kurds were isolated geographically, socially, and culturally from their Iraqi co-religionists. As in the Iraqi community, the majority continued to object to educating girls. In general, the Chachanim, rabbis, did not invest in educating the young because they were busy performing other demanding tasks such as ritual animal slaughter and performing circumcisions on Muslims. In any case, very few of themselves were literate. Boys learned in Hader, and girls learned only the Shema Yisrael prayer. From their mothers, sis from their mothers, sisters, and grandmothers, girls learned how to perform all the girls learned how to perform all household duties and conduct themselves as wives and mothers. As early as the 19 1906, the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which I mentioned in the Mizrahi Jew episode, I think, or Sephardic Jew episode, opened schools for boys and boys and girls, as well as many other fac facilities for educating and fostering process among the Jewish Kurds. Non-Jewish Kurds also benefited, benefited vastly, since children were accepted in these schools regardless of their religious affiliation. Operations of the Alliance continued in, until soon after the establishment of Israel. However, very few girls studied in these schools for more than three or four years. The majority of women did not study. As already mentioned, the Kurdish Jews were distinct from the rest of the Jewish world. Farming the fertile land and keeping sheep, working in fields and vineyards from sunrise to sunset. Early evening, oh, every evening, women in the extended family and the neighbors would gather to help uh, each other clean the rice, sift the wheat, and break the bread. All, all while the while singing, chatting, and laughing. During the harvest time, all the members of the family worked together, including the women. Prior to the immigration to Israel, the majority of Jews continued to engage in farming as a major source of income, but supplemented it with occupations such as dressmaking, weaving, painting, shoemaking, trading small goods, and bartering. Some 70 families from Zacho excelled in shipping wood and cargo from Kurdistan down the rivers to arid areas. Walter Fischel, in 1949, found that, found that in 1936, many Jewish farmers who were poverty-stricken, particularly in the years of Zhao, were forced to sell their daughters because of the famine. Uh, there were incidents in which creditors took farmers' daughters and for sons in Liu, of money owed to them. In the eyes of the Arabs, Jewish girls were considered an attractive commodity in exchange for goods. Conversion to Islam was not uncommon. In many cases, Jews who converted refused to divorce their wives. Due to the fear of their becoming agonot, Rabbi Yosef Chaim made a tanaka to protect women which stated that every man had to write in the ketubah that he should change his religion in the that he should that that should he can change his religion, the kedushin would not be null and void. Thus, the women's right to be remarried were not abused by men who decided to, con to convert. As the conditions of Jews improved, the number of conversions declined dramatically. Shimon Marcus tells of, of, a not, of a not uncommon incident where a marriage was contracted between families. The bride price was paid and the engagement took place, but the girl changed her mind and refused to marry the man. First part, not, he refused to divorce her. Thereupon, the woman threatened to convert to Islam and marry a non-Jew. This, this threat led to such community pressure that the groom finally granted the wo woman the bill of divorce. Generally speaking, uh, 
The Jews had good relations with the Muslims and Christians, except for one problem. Arabs loved Jewish women, found them very beautiful and attractive, and desired to marry them. As a result, there are many incidents in which Muslims adopted girls and married them. Horrified families guarded their daughters closely, particularly if the girls were young and very good-looking. Once the girls abducted, her family could do little to bring her back, and the chances of her being found were very slim. The Jews of Kurdistan have had lived or still live in the cities of Erbil, Mosul, Zahel, Samblad, uh, I can't find Samblad, I tried to Google it and I couldn't find it, Koya, Ra Rawanduz, Diyar Bakir, Urfa, Sirvek, Mardin, and Nerwa. Kurdish Jews number around 200,000 to 300,000, but on more sources I found, the, uh, the, but on more, most sources I found, I only found there's uh, around 200,000 200, Kurdish Jews, and they basically all live in Israel, with most of them living in Jerusalem. Some Kurdish Jews also live in Kurdistan, more specifically probably Iraqi Kurdistan, with, a, with an estimated 300 to 730 Jewish families living there. However, most of the sources I found stating the population of Kurdish Jews in Iraqi Kurdistan are, st are sketchy. Also, since Kurdish Jews are constantly intermarried as the Kurds have, have unity, the population census of Jewish Kurds is not the population census of Jewish Kurds is not accurate. Also, since Kurdistan is not an official country, they cannot really conduct any uh, official census counting uh, of the Jews who live in Kurdistan if they if they do live there. And some Kurdish Jews also live in various countries across the world, but their population is negligible. Maybe maybe in a few tens, like you know. Not, not bas they basically all live in Israel. Like, 90, I would say 98% of them live in Israel, or 95% of them live in Israel. So, yeah, they don't really live in, they basically live in, all of them basically live in Israel. Um, you know, the, Jew, the, the Kurdish Jews were cut, were cut off from Jewish life and each other. You know, they had a hard scrabble life through geography, harsh climate, and punishing of famine and, and tribal warfare, as I literally said that before. Uh, no po there's no poetry for them in the Bible, as opposed to, the, you know, the... Uh, the Babylonian Jews, Israelites uh, were lost and don't even exist and perish and gone. Like they thought the, the Jews of Kurdistan were gone and, you know, the, the, the Jewish Kurdish history is just gone. And some famous Kurdish Jews are Yonas Abar, who was born in 1938 in Zahra, Iraq, and is, in, as in, is, and is a professor emeritus at UCLA. Ariel Sabar, who is the son of Yonas Abar, and is an American author and journalist, as well as Edwin Shakur, who was a translator for a U.S. senator in 2003. And in the days of Yonas Abar, you know, when he lived there, when he was like a, you know, like a young kid, 25,000 Jews lived in 200 villages in Kurdistan over an area of 200 square miles. I will now be talking about why I'm making this episode about Kurdish Jews as a distinct Jewish ethnic group. One reason why Kurdish Jews are a distinct ethnic group is because they have a Kurdish culture as, a, as opposed to a North African Maghrebi culture and a general Mr. Middle Eastern Arabic Musturabi culture, although Kurdistan is a part of the Middle East. Like Israel, Kurdistan is a non-Arab, Arab, semi-autonomous country, but Arab, Arab, uh, Israel is a like, you know, fully recognized autonomous country, who is struggling to get independence from themselves. Kurdistan and the Kurdish people are a distinct ethnic group than those, of the, than those of the countries they currently live in, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. Although Kurdish Jews are considered, Miz Kurdish Jews are considered Mizrahi, the definition of Mizrahi simply means Eastern, which can refer to anything that is East, and which in Mizrahi refers to Middle East. So the term Mizrahi has no regard whether you're a Jew from Kuwait, Yemen, Tunisia, T Turkey, or in this case, Kurdistan, even though it's not a recognized country. Jew Kurdish Jews also speak a different language, most commonly Aramaic, and other languages which will be addressed in the next section, than, other most than, than most other Mizrahi Jews 
whether it be a localized language specific to a Jewish ethnic group or Arabic as a general language. Moreover, there are other groups of Mizrahi Jewish communities that lived in very close proximity to Kurdistan, but over time, while still being classified as Mizrahi Jews, became other distinct Jewish ethnic groups. You know, I'm going to be saying, now I'm going to be saying something from an article. In describing life for Jews among Kurds, uh, he referred to the events and figures that directly shaped their lives, their economic ties to Kurds, the mercy or cruelty of particular sheikhs. In our area, there were Arab, i.e. Muslim Kurdish leaders who protected us. But whenever Muslims would come from outside, from Turkey for example, they would hit us. They were outraged that we had shops and businesses in Zaho. He used the term of Arab, Arab that reveals religious and tribal identification persisted here as a dominant f uh, form of social organization into the era, era, era of nascent states. That Arabs were the dominant group among Muslims in general meant that for categorical purposes, from a Jewish perspective, Muslim Kurds were effectively Arab. Their Kurdishness was, was a primarily linguistic, not ethnic consequence. In the 1940s, when the name of the state of Israel began to sound, Muslims started to hate us. Kurds, however, were neutral, he continued, a point that would recur throughout my conversations. The ultimate kindness the Kurds performed for the Jews was allowing them to escape. The nightmare of Iraq and the return to Israel, in contrast to the institutionalized anti-Semitism and violence directed against the Baghdadi Jews in the years prior to their flight. This collective memory of a rare act of empathy by a majority, of groups toward, majority group towards Jews has perlocated up to the political class, where it is taken as evidence of moral caliber of Kurds, as well as their capacity for sympathy based on minority suffering and self-determination. When I asked him what, what he called himself ethno-nationally upon the rival Israel, he said Kurdi. Or Kurdish. Why? Because we are not Iraqi. Kurdistan is a big place, much bigger than Iraq. Unlike the Arab majority in central and south southern Iraq, the Kurds of northern Iraq don't see Jews as or Israel as enemies. In fact, the Kurdish unity between them is so intertwined, unlike the Arabs, Turks, and Persians surrounding them, that this happened. Yonah Sabar said in a video, "Oh, oh, uh, Yonah Sabar said this in a video that I'm going to link." Someone from Palestine, you know, when uh, you know when Israel and Palestine got created, like Israel and Palestine. Someone from Palestine, a mullah, came to Zacho to preach Muslim, to preach Muslims to fight the Zionists and join the Israeli army. Um, and uh, Karim uh, Ara, a Kurdistani leader, said, "You are in the wrong. Stop preaching and talking about our our brothers. Pack up and leave." And basically told them to go away. I don't want to be rude here, so I'm just gonna leave it at that. And you know, shows how uh, close like all the Kurdish were. You know, they're Kurdish before they're Jewish. You know. Finally, Kurdish Jews even eat different foods as opposed to the general Sephardic and Mizrahi Jewish populace. Do you have any other reasons why Kurdish Jews are a distinct Jewish ethnic group? Jewish ethnic group? You can let me know by emailing me at worldwidejew at gmail.com or DMing me on Instagram at worldwide underscore Jew. Surprisingly, since Kurdish Jews were so isolated from, Jew, from, from Jews from Assyria, led very different lives from more famously exiled to Babylon, and therefore they spoke and preserved their main language, spoken languages, Aramaic, and the other languages they spoke that didn't have a written script, which makes it hard to document it because someone would have to translate the language in a language that you can write down. Nor Northeastern Neo-Aramaic, or often abbreviated Nina, is a variety of modern Aramaic languages, one spoken in a large region stretching from the plain of Urmia in northwestern Iran to the plain of Mosul in northern Iraq, as well as bordering regions in southeast Turkey and northeast, northeast Syria. As of 1990s, the Nina group has an estimated number of fluent speakers among Assyrians just below 500,000 spread throughout the Middle East and the Assyrian diaspora. More than 90% of these speak either the Assyrian Neo-Aramaic or the Chaldean Neo-Aramaic, two varieties of Christian Neo-Aramaic or Shirthwich, 
contrary to what their name suggests, are not divided on, along denominational Catholic, Chilean Catholic Church, Assyrian Church of, of the East Lines. And indeed, speakers of both dialects may follow, may be followers of the Syriac Orthodox Church or Protestants. There are a number of new varieties, but all of them are endangered or near extinct. And in, in, in addition, some Assyrian communities speak Central Aramaic dialects, such as Toroyo. The Nina languages contain a large number of loanwords and some grammatical features from the extinct East Semitic Akkadian languages of Mesopotamia, the original language of the Assyrians, and also in more modern times from the surrounding languages, Kurdish, Arabic, Persian, Azerbaijani, and Turkish language. These languages are spoken both by Jews and Christian Assyrians and from the area. Each variety of Nina is clearly Jewish or Assyrian. However, not all varieties of one or other religious groups are intelligible with all others of the group. Likewise, some, in some places, Jews and Assyrian Christians from the same, uh, from the same locale speak mutually unintelligible varieties of Aramaic, where in other places their language is quite similar. The difference can be explained by the fact that Nina communities gradually became isolated into small groups spread over a wide area, and some had to be highly mobile due to various ethnic and religious persecutions. The influence of classic Aramaic varieties, Syriac on Christian varieties, and Targumic on Jewish communities, gave a dual heritage that further distinguishes the language by faith. Many of the Jewish speakers of Nina varieties, the Kurdish Jews, now live in Israel, where New Aramaic is endangered by the dominance of modern Hebrew. Many Christian Nina speakers, who are usually Assyrian, are in the diaspora of North, in North America, Europe, Australia, the Caucasus, and elsewhere, although indigenous communities reign in, remain in northern Iraq, southeast Turkey, and northeast Syria, and northwest Iran, an area roughly compromising of what had been ancient Assyria. There are also numerous languages of Aramaic that non-Jews spoke, but I'm only talking about the dialects that the Jewish Kurds spoke. As you know, this is worldwide Jew, and I'm talking about Kurdish Jews, so yeah, that makes sense. Barzani Jewish Neo-Aramaic is a modern Jewish Aramaic language, often called Neo-Aramaic or Judeo-Aramaic. It was originally spoken in the three villages near Akwa in Iraqi Kurdistan. The native Akra in Iraqi Kurdistan. The native name of the language is Lishani Janan, which means our language, and is similar to the names used by other Jewish Neo-Aramaic dialects, Lishan Didan, Lishanid Noshan. It is nearly extinct, with only about 20 elderly speakers today. The Jewish inhabitants of wide area from northern Iraq, eastern Turkey, and northwest Iran, corresponding to the areas of Kurdistan, spoke mostly various dialects of modern Aramaic. The turmoil near the end of World War I and resettlement in Israel in 1951, when eight families from Belijil moved to the new Jewish state, led to the decline of these traditional languages. This particular and distinct dialect of Jewish Neo-Aramaic was spoken in the villages of Bijil, Barzan, and Shashe. It was known as Bijil until recently. The last native speaker of Bijil Neo-Aramaic, Mr. Hel Avraham, died in Jerusalem in 1998. The remaining, the remaining second language speakers are, related all, are, are, related, are all related and over 70 years of age, and both from Barzan. Other speakers are from Accra. Barzan and Accra are both located in Iraqi Kurdistan. The first language of these speakers is either Hebrew or Kurdish, and some also speak Arabic or another Neo-Aramaic dialect. Thus, the language is effectively extinct. Most of the speakers of Barzani Jewish Neo-Aramaic live in Jerusalem, uh, and Jerusalem, which is split between uh, Israel and the West Bank today. Barzani Jewish uh, Neo-Aramaic is a part of the northeastern Neo-Aramaic Nina speech type. Many of the Nina languages are seriously endangered, like Barzani Jewish Neo-Aramaic. Most of the Nina languages became endangered since most of the Aramaic-speaking Jewry began to immigrate to Israel. This occurred during the 1950s. Barzani Jewish Neo-Aramaic stands, stands out from these languages because it is endangerment in the early 1990s. This occurred in Kurdistan. 
The reason for the decline of the language was, was that most of the speakers were dispersed and integrated into communities that spoke other languages than Barzani, Jewish, Neo-Aramaic. This dispersal occurred violently in many of the communities by outside forces. Most of the speakers of Barzani, Jewish, Neo-Aramaic now speak Israeli, Hebrew, or Arabic. Hulalua. Hulalua. Hulaula. Hulaula is a modern Jewish-Aramaic language, often called Neo-Aramaic or Judeo-Aramaic. It was originally spoken in Iranian Kurdistan and small parts in the easternmost part of Iraqi Kurdistan. Most speakers now live in Israel. The name Hulaula simply means Jewish. Speakers sometimes call the language Lishana Noshan or Lishana Akini, both of which mean our language, to distinguish it from other dialects of Judeo-Neo-Aramaic. Hulaula is sometimes called Gali Glu, mine yours, demonstrating different use of prepositions and prenominal suffixes. Scholarly sources tend to simply call it per Persian, Kurdistani, Jewish, Neo-Aramaic. Hulaula is is written in the Hebrew alphabet. Spelling tends to be highly phonetic and elided. Letters are not written. Hulala sits at the northeastern extreme of the wide area over which which various Neo-Aramaic dialects used to be spoken. From from Samadaj, the capital of Kurdistan province, Iran, the area extended to the north to the banks of Lake Urmia. From there, it extended to Lake Van in Turkey and, uh, and south onto the plains of Mosul in Iraq. Then it headed east again through Arbil and back to Samadaj. The a people of, the, of their traditional origin after the First War and founding of the State of Israel led most of the Persian Jews to settle, or Kurdish Jews, uh, to settle in the new homeland in the early 1950s. Most older speakers ha still have Kurdish as a second language, while younger generations have Hebrew. Hulala is the strongest of all Jewish Neo-Aramic languages, with around 10,000 speakers. Among all these live in Israel, with a few many in Iran and some in the United States. Hulala is sometimes intelligible to Jewish Neo-Aramic Neo-Aramaic of Lake Urmia and Iranian Azerbaijan, Lishan Didan. It is also somewhat intelligible with its western neighbor, the Jewish Arabic Neo-Aramaic of Erbil, Lishan Noshan. However, it is unintelligible with the Christian Neo-Aramaic of Sandadaj, Sanaya. Christians and Jews spoke completely different Neo-Aramaic languages in the same region. Like other Judeo-Aramaic languages, Hulala is sometimes called Targumic. Due to long traditions of translating the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic and the, and the, and the produ production of Targums, the various dialects of Hulala were clustered around major settlements, er major settlement areas of Jews in the region. The cities of Sandadaj and Sakez in the Kurdistan province, Iran, with a southern outpost at Kirin and a cluster in the Iraqi city of Sulaymania. Hulala is full of loanwords from Hebrew, Akkadian, Persian, and Kurdish. Lishana Deni is a modern Jewish Aramaic language, often called Neo-Arabic or Judeo-Aramaic. It was often it was religiously spoken in northern Iraq and southwestern Turkey, in the lands of the in the lands west of the Great Zab River, Atura. Following the exodus of Jews from the Muslim lands, most speakers now live in Israel, principally Jerusalem and the surrounding villages. The name Lishana Deni means our language, and is similar to names used by other Jewish Neo-Aramaic dialects, Lishan Didan, Lishan. Lishanid Noshan. Other people popular names for the language are Lishan Hosei, the language of the Jews, and Kurdit. Kurdish, Kurdish. Scholarly sources tend to, re to refer to Lishana Deni as Zaho Jewish near Aramaic, although it was spoken in the entire region west of the Great Zab River. Various Neo Aramaic dialects were spoken across a wide area from the Zaho region in west to Lake Armia, in the northeast to Sanajas, and the southeast, the area that covers northern Iraq and northwestern Iran. Their upheavals in the traditional religion after the First World War and the founding of the State of Israel led most of the Jews to Kurdistan to the village nearby. However, uprooted from northern Iraq, 
and thrown together with so many different language groups in the fledging nation, the Shana Daini began to be replaced in the speech of younger generations by modern Hebrew. Fewer than 8,000 people are known to speak Lishana Daini, and all of them are over 50 years old. Lishana Daini is, used, is written in the Hebrew alphabet. Spelling tends to be highly phonetic, and alliterated letters are not written. The language faces extinction in the next few decades. Although there are very little, little intelligibility between Lishana Daini and other Jewish dialects, there is quite reasonable intel, intelligibility, intelligibility between it and Christian New Aramaic dialects spoken in the region. The Christian dialect of Chaldean New Aramaic is the closest to Lishana Daini followed by the Ashira dialects of the Assyrian Neo-Aramaic. Like other Judeo-Aramaic dialects, Lishana Daini is sometimes called Targumic, due to the long traditions of translating the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic and the production of Targunim. Lishana Daini was spoken in Atur, which means Assyria and Nina dialects, which is located west of the Great Zab River in northern Iraq and southeastern Turkey. Most Lishana Daini speakers are rural and were farmer and shepherds, but there are urban speakers as well in cities such as Nahar, Har Nahadra, Zaho, Amedia, and more. The regions where Lishana Daini was spoken are Botan, Zaho, and in the Nevan Plains in Upper Mesopotamia, as well as Nerwa, Sapna, Barwari, and Hakari Mountains. Lishdidan Lish is, is in a modern Jewish Aramaic language, also often called Neuro-Aramaic or Judeo-Aramaic. It was originally spoken in Iranian Azerbaijan, in the, in the region of Lake Ermia, from Salamas to Mahabad. Most speakers now live in Israel. The name Lishan Didan means our language. Other variations are called Lishanan, our language, and Lishan Lishanid Nash Didan, the language of ourselves. As this causes some confusion with sim similarly similarly named languages, Lishan Dain Daini and Lishanid Noshan. Scholarly sources simply tend to use a more descriptive name like Persian, Azerbaijani, Jewish, Neo Aramaic. To distinguish from other dialects of Jewish Neo Arabic, Lishan Didan is sometimes called Lach Loki, literally to you, um, feminine, and to you, masculine, or Gilahu, mine, yours, demonstrating a difference of prepositions and pronominal suffixes. Ishan Didan is written in the Hebrew alphabet. Spelling tends to be highly phonetic, and leaded in letters, and leaded letters are not written. Various new Aramaic dialects were spoken across a wide area from Lake Ormia to Lake Van in Turkey, down to the plain of Mosul in Iraq, and back to, uh, across again to Sanajaz in Iran again. There are two major dialect clusters of Lishan Didan. The northern clusters of the dialect, centered on Ermia and Salmas in western, western Azerbaijan, extended into the Jewish villages of the Turkish province of Van. The southern clusters of dialects focused on the town of Mahabad and, the, and villages south, just south of Lake Ermia. The dialects of the two clusters are intelligible to one another, and most of the differences are due to, re, are due to receiving loanwords from different languages, Persian, Kurdish, and Turkish languages especially. Many of the Jews at Urmia worked as peddlers in the cloth trade, while, other Jew while others were jewelers or goldsmiths. The greater education for the boys was primary school, with only some, advance with only some advancing their Jewish schooling in a Talmud yeshiva. Some of these students earned their livelihoods by making talisman and amulets. There was a small girls' school with only 20 pupils. There were two main synagogues in Urmia, one large and another smaller one. The, large synagogue was called, was, was, the larger synagogue was called the Synagogue of Sheikh Ab Abdullah. By 1918, due to the assassination of the Patriarch of the Church of the East and the invasion of the, by, of the Ottoman forces, many Jews were uprooted from their homes and fled. The Jews settled in Sibili and were much later emigrated to Israel. There are peoples in the tradi traditional region after the First World War and the founding of the State of Israel led most Azerbaijani Jews to settle in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and small villages in various parts of the country. Due to persecution relocation, Lishan Didan began to be replaced by the speech of younger generations by modern Hebrew. 
Uh, most native Lishandi Dan speakers speak Hebrew to their children now. Fewer than 5,000 people are known to speak Lishandi Dan, and most of them are older adults in their 60s who speak Hebrew as well. The language faces extinction in the next few decades. Lishani Noshand is a modern Jewish Aramaic language, often called Neo-Aramaic or Judeo-Aramaic. It was originally spoken in northeastern Iraq in the region of Arabil. Most speakers now live in Israel. Lishanid Noshan means language of our people. Speakers often called Lishana Didan, which means our language. However, as similar names are used by most of the dialects of Jewish Neo-Aramaic, scholarly sources tend to call it Arbil Jewish Neo-Aramaic. Other popular names for the language included are Hula Ula, Gali Galu, Mine Yours, noting the difference in grammar from other dialects, Sureth and Kordit. Various New Aramaic dialects were spoken across a wide area from Lake Ermia to Lake Van in Turkey, down to the plains of Nineveh in Iraq, and back again to Sanajaz in Iran again. La Shanid Noshana is quite central to this area, although no normally termed a southwestern dialect. In some it, is, it is somewhat intelligible with the Jewish New Aramaic languages of Hul Hulala, spoken, spoken to the east in Iranian Kurdistan and Lishandidan, spoken to the northeast in Iranian Azerbaijan. It is also intelligible with the Syrian New Aramaic spoken in the region. However, it is quite unintelligible from Lishanadeni, the dialect that originally came from northwestern Iraq, Assyria. It is since only the 1980s that studies have shown the distinctiveness that separates Lishanid Noshan from Hula Hula Hula. Before this time, they were simply considered to be dialect clusters of the same essential language. There are two major dialect clusters of Lishad Noshan. The western cluster of dialects was centered on Erbil. Most of the Jews of Erbil itself spoke Iraq Arabic as their first language, and their Syriac Aramaic was heavily influenced by the Mesopotamian Arabic. Thus, the language of the, of the plain is the Aramaic dialect of the villages of the, of the plain of Erbil. Lishan Noshan was also spoken about 15, 50 kilometers north of Arbil in the village of Dobe, or Dobe, Dobe, with a dialect related to but thing from Arbili. The eastern cluster of dialects was focused on the town of uh, Khoi Sanjaz and the mountain of north northeastern Iraq, but not related to the Christian language of Khoi Sanjak Surat, uh, with a slightly different subcluster further north, around the village of, of Rwandis. The dialects of the two clusters are intelligible to one another. And most of the differences are due to receiving loanwords from different languages, Arabic and Kurdish. The verbal system of Lishanin Noshan is quite distinctive. Variations of it mark the boundaries dialect clusters within the language. The Arbil dialect expresses the progressive aspect by prefixing the particle la to the verb form, uh, for example, lakatil, he is killing, and lakatil, he was killing, against katil, he kills, and kitil, he killed. The Dobe dialect is, does a similar thing but uses the prefix na. The eastern, the eastern cluster dialect uses the non-finite forms of the verb with the copula to express the progressive aspects. The upheavals, the upheavals in the traditional region, religion, region after the First World War and the founding of the State of Israel led most of the Jews Kurdistan uh, to settle in the, new, in the new Jewish homeland. However, uprooted their, from their homes and thrown together with so many different language groups in the fledgling nation, Lishanid uh, Noshan began to be replaced in the speech of younger generations by modern Hebrew. Fewer than 3,000 people are known to speak Lishanid Noshan, and most of them are over 40 years old. The language faces extinction in the next few decades. Lishanid Noshan is written, is written in the Hebrew alphabet. Spelling tends to be highly phonetic, and elided letters are not written. The Kurdish languages are constituted a dialect continuum, spoken by Kurds in Kurdistan and the Kurdish diaspora. The three Kurdish languages are Northern Kurdish, Kermanji, Central Kurdish, Sorani, and Southern Kurdish, Pabalani, or Zarawin.
A separate group of non-Kurdish Northwestern Iranian languages, the Zazagorani language, are also spoken by several million ethnic Kurds. Studies as of 2009 estimate between 8 and 20 million native Kurdish speakers in Turkey. Kurdish consists of two standard forms, Kermanji and Sarani. The majority of Kurds speak Kermanji. The literary output of Kurdish was, was confined to poetry until the early 20th century, when more general literature became, became developed. Today, the two principal written Kurdish dialects are Kermanji and Sarani. Sarani, along with Arabic, is one of two official languages of Iraq and is in political documents simply referred to as Kurdish. Kermanji, uh, meaning Kurdish, also termed Northern Kurdish is the Northern is the northern dialect of the Kurdish languages, spoken predominantly in southeast Turkey, northwest and northeastern Iran, northern Iraq, northern Syria, and the Caucasus and Khorasan region. It is most it is the most spoken form of Kurdish and its mother tongue to other ethnic minorities in Kurdistan as well, including Armenians, Chechens, Caucasians, and Bulgarians, as well as Jews, which is what I'm talking about in the episode. The earliest textual record of Kermanji Kurdish dates back to the 16th century. Prominent. Uh, the earliest textual records of Kermanji Kurdish dates back to approximately the 16th and many prom 16th century, and many prominent Kurdish poets like Ahmad Khani wrote in this dialect. Kermanji Kurdish is also the common and ceremonial dialect of the of Yazidis. The sacred book Meshefares and all prayers are written and spoken in Kermanji. Mizrahi Hebrew or Eastern Hebrew refers to any of the pronunciation systems for biblical Hebrew used liturgically by Mizrahi Jews. Jews from Arab countries or east of them, and with a background of Arabic, Persian, or other languages of the Middle East and Asia. As such, Mizrahi Air, Air Hebrew is actually a blanket term for many dialects. Sephardi Hebrew is not considered one of these, even though it has been spoken in the Middle East and North Africa. The Sephardim were ex-beliefs from Spain and settled along the, uh, among the Mizrahim, but in countries such as Syria and Morocco, there is a fairly high degree of convergence between smart Sephardi and local pronunciation of Hebrew. Yemenite Hebrew is also considered quite separate and has a wholly different system for the pronunciation of vowels. The same terms are used the same terms are sometimes used for the pronunciation of modern Hebrew by Jews of Mizrahi origins. It is generally com comprised between modern Sephard, modern standard Hebrew and the traditional liturgical pronunciation as described where the information I'm getting it from. A common form such as uh, a common form of such compromise is the use of um, Chet and Ayin, respectively uh, you know those letters with most of with most or all of their sounds pronou pronounced as in standard Israeli Hebrew. In Iranian Kurdistan, Kurdish Jews spoke Azeri, Azerbaijani, or Azeri, also known as Azerbaijani, Azerbaijani Turkic, or Azerbaijani Turkish. It's a Turkic language spoken primarily by the Azerbaijani uh, people who mainly live in in the Republic of Azerbaijan, where the northern Azerbaijani variety is spoken, and in Iranian Azerbaijan. Iranian Azerbaijan, where the southern Iranian uh, Azerbaijani uh, variety is spoken. Although there is a very high degree of mutual intelligibility between both forms of Azerbaijani, there are some significant differences in phonology, lexicon, morphology, syntax, and source of loan words. Northern Azerbaijani has official public, a official status in the Republic of Azerbaijan and Dagestan, a federal subject to Russia. But southern Azerbaijani does not have official status in Iran, where the majority of Azerbaijanis live. It is also spoken to lesser varying degrees in Azerbaijani communities of Georgia and Turkey and by diaspora communities primarily in Europe and North America. Both Azerbaijani varieties are members of the Oghuz branch of the Turkic language, languages. The standardized form of North, North Azerbaijani, spoken in the Republic of Azerbaijan and Russia, is based on the Shir Shirvani dialect, while Ray Iranian Azerbaijani uses the Tabrizi dialect as its prestige variety. Azerbaijani is cl closely related to Gaguz, Kashkai, Carmen Tatar, Turkish, 
and Turkmen, sharing varying degrees of mutual intelligibility with each of those languages. According to linguistic comp comparative studies, the closest relative of Azerbaijani is the Turkmen language. Historically, the language was referred to by native speakers as Turkey, meaning Turkic, or Azerbaijan Turkasi, meaning Azerbaijani Turkic. Prior to the establishment of the Azerbaijan Democratic Republic, who adopted the name of Azerbaijan for political reasons in 1918, the name Azerbaijan was exclusively used to identify the adjacent region of the contemporary northwestern Iran. After the establishment of Azerbaijan SSR, on the order of the on order of the Soviet leader Stalin, the name of the former language of the Azerbaijan SSR was changed from Tur Turkish to Azeri. The Muslim Kurds speak Kurdish, an Indo-Iranian language that has several regional dialects. Most Christians and Jews speak various Aramaic dialects containing Kurdish, many Kurdish, Persian, and Turkish and Arabic loanwords. The Jewish dialects also include many Hebrew loanwords. Because the topography and climate made travel and communication very difficult, almost every village and town had its own dialect. Wherever there was a Jewish community, there was a, usually a distinctive Jewish dialect, as well as a Christian one, which were, however, mutually intelligible. The farther two places were from each other, the less mutually intelligible their dialects would be. Practically all the Jewish men and many women spoke Kurdish, which they used when talking with Kurds at the marketplace and during other, other social and commercial encounters. Kurdish was also the language of folk songs and other type of folklore traditions. Hebrew was the language of recitation for religious rituals, blessings, and prayers. The learned men also used Hebrew for the traditional forms of writing, including personal correspondence. Hebrew expressions were used by Jews engaged in commerce as as, in a secret, as a secret in-group language, when they, when they did not want Gentile, the Gentiles to understand. Arabic was used only for official purposes or when talking to nomadic Arab, Arabs. Many Jews in the larger towns, however, have shifted from Aramaic to Arabic in Iraq, Persian in Iran, and Turkey in Turkish, Turkish in Turkey. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising if Kurdish Jews also knew, knew how to speak modern Hebrew because basically the entire population lives in Israel, as well as English because a lot of the Western world um, whom they associate with speaks English. Also, Kurdish Jews also speak languages that I not mentioned because the Kurdish Jews who speak the languages are, I who like you know like obviously Kurdish Jews like you know speak languages that I have not mentioned because you know there's like a lot of like Kurdish Jews and they probably speak languages that I have not mentioned. I'm like I'm saying the language that I'm talking about are the major ones that they speak. Now some stuff from articles, you know, just random snippets. I asked him if he saw himself as a Kurdish. As a different Kurdish Muslim ethnically, he said, yes, the language is different. We spoke as Syrian, but the Arab Kurds didn't understand us. When the Arab Kurds spoke to us in their language, Karmanji, we as Jews understood. When we spoke to them in Assyrian Aramaic, they did not understand us. So when the Kurdish Muslims spoke to them, they understood. When they spoke in their Aramaic, they didn't understand because it's such an isolated language. The Babylonian, the Babylonian Talmud is written in Aramaic a language that uses Hebrew letters and is closely related to Hebrew, but with, but with some key differences. For generations, Jews living in Kurdish lands retained Aramaic as their everyday language, spoken language. They adopted some words from Turkish, Persian, Kurdish, Arabic, and Hebrew, but in general spoke Aramaic very similar to their ancestors in Talmudic times. Kurdish Jews called their language Lishna Yehuda, meaning the Jewish language or Lashon HaTargum, meaning the language of, of the translation. Presumably be referring to translations of the Torah, or the Shon Hagalut, meaning language of exile, from the land of Israel. Local Arabs called the Jewish language Jabali, meaning from the mountains, referring to where some, where some Jews in Kurdish lands lived. 
in this in the history section, I'll be talking about the history of the Kurdish Jews in Iraq and Iran, because that's what I can find information-wise because there's so little of it on the internet. And history of the Kurdish Jews will mention things included, such as events and numbers that also include Jews not from Kurdistan, so don't be confused when I start mentioning Jewish non-Kurd-related history. Tradition holds that the tribe of Benjamin first arrived to the, in the area of modern Kurdistan after the Assyrian conquest of the Kingdom of Israel during the 8th century BCE. They were subsequently relocated to the Syrian capital. During the 1st century BCE, the royal house of Adyabin, which, which according to Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, was uh, ethnically Assyrian and whose capital was Abiel, who was converted to Judaism. King Monobaz I, his queen Helena of Adyabin, and his son and successor Itas Bar, Bar Monobaz are recorded as the first prophetites. The Jewish, the Jewish Kurds of Iran have traditionally, have traditionally been living in Iran since 722 BCE. But according to Kings uh, II, um, 17 6, 18.9-12, they were deported from Samaria and brought to the cities of the Medes, which, which roughly corresponds to the present provinces of Azerbaijan, Kurdistan, and the western part of Gilan. Jewish Kurds are mentioned by Benjamin and Tuldea. The Jewish Kurds of Iran speak their own language, which linguistically is classified as a uh, Neo-Judeo-Aramaic uh, Neo language. They have produced their own literature in this language. It is close to the present language of Assyrians, Ashuri. If the, if the language is an indication of their ethnic identity, one might, may say they do not live in the province of Kurdistan, but also in the cities and villages of Azerbaijan and the territories adjacent to Galin, Hamadan, Kermansha, and their vicinity. As such, it is safe to say that in the 20th century they live more than, in, in more than 45 towns and villages in, nor in north and northwestern Iran. Many Jewish, commu Jew Jewish communities in Kurdish lands claim they have been there for over 2,500 years, ever since the Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel were sent into exile there. The Danakh wrote court that in the 8th century BCE, Shalomezer, king of Assyria, uh, went up against the Jewish king Oshea, invading land evading Jewish lands and laying siege to the cities and towns. Eventually, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and exiled Israel to Assyria. He then settled in Hala, in harbor, by the Gozan River, and in cities of Medea. These sites are listed within the Kurdish regions of Iran and Central Asia. In the first century CE, the kingdom of Adyabin in Iran became a lo lo loyal part of the Jewish community after the, after the local monarch's wife, Queen Helene, converted to Judaism and encouraged her subjects to do the same. Kurdish Jews still recall the kingdom of Adyabin in what is today is what is Kurdish lands today as part of the unique heritage. The, the, the Jewish kingdom of Adyabin lasted until 115 CE when Roman forces crushed its leaders, but Kurdish Jews continue to regard its descendants as a part of their community. For generations, the Jews in Kurdish areas lived in relative isolation. Many worked as farmers and their insular communities developed distinct customs, including marrying at a very young age and praying at the graves of Jewish prophets. The medieval Jewish traveler Benjamin of Tuldea vi visited Kurdish areas in 1170 CE and encountered over 100 Jewish communities in Kurdish lands. One of the largest was Ahmadiyya in current day Iraq, we were, where he recorded that the Jewish community numbered around 25,000. Though the largest community of non Jewish Kurds is found today in, pre in present day Turkey, Kurdish Jews live primarily further east in modern Iraq. An ancient tradition relates that the Jews of Kurdistan are the descendants of the ten tribes from, this, from the time of the Syrian exi exile. The first to mention this was Rab, uh, 
Benjamin of Tuladea, the 12th century traveler who visited Kurdistan in about 1170 and found more than 100 Jewish communities. In the town of Ahmadiyya alone, there were 25,000 Jews who spoke the language of Tagum, Aramaic, and whose numbers included scholars. The traveler, Benjamin II, who visited Kurdistan in 1848, also mentioned this tradition and added that Nestorian Assyrian tribes were also descendants of the Ten Tribes and that they practiced Jewish customs. According to his assumptions, they were descendants of Dan and Naphtali, there's no doubt that Hala and Harbor, Baran Kabur, the rivers of Gozan, second uh, of Kings 17:6, the places to which Shalimar, king of Assyria, exiled the tribes, are in the vicinity of Kurdistan. During the Second Temple era, the kingdom of Adyabin was situated in this region. Its inhabitants, together with the king Manabaz and his mother Helena, converted to Judaism in the middle of the first century. It may be presumed that there are descendants of these prophetesites among the Jews of Kurdistan. Okanelos translated. Hare Anarat as the mountains of Kardu, uh, Genesis 8.4. He also translated Mamuk Arat as the kingdom of the land of Kardu. Josephus mentions the mountain of Kurutim. In the Talmud, it is related that one accepts prosyats from Kardus. An ancient popular tradition states that among Assyrians of northern Iraq, there are many families of Jewish origin, and, they, these, were for, and these were forcibly con converted to Christianity more than 500 years ago. They still observe special Jewish customs, have not assimilated among the Christians, marry among themselves, and are afraid of revealing the origins in front of the Christians. Another popular tradition states that many of the descendants of the ten tribes who were exiled to this region by kings of Assyria converted to Christianity. In 38 villages of Iraqi Kurdistan, there were hundreds of, of Jews who claimed to be descent from the tribes of Benjamin and who possessed a holy book in Kurdish. They lived in the provinces of Mosul, Kirkuk, and Kanakin. Some of them immigrated from Af Afghanistan to the Caucasus. During the middle of the 7th century, at the time of the Arab conquest, the Treaty of the Conquest was signed in the town of Dabil on the Armenian border with the Magaians, Zoroastrians, and the Jews. From this, it is ascertained that there was another Jewish community in addition to that of Mosul and possibly that of Erbil. During the 12th century, two Messianic movements arose in the neighborhood of the town of Amidea, that of Menachem uh, ben Solomon ibn Ruhi, or Dugi and that of David Arroy. Some scholars regard these as one movement. There's no clear information on the situation of the Jews during the 13th to 15th centuries. From the beginning of the 16th century, however, information, gra information gradually becomes more available. The, the, statistics, the statistics provided by various travelers at different periods indicate great fluctuations over short periods of time in the Jewish population of, of every town and villages. Every town and village. At times, the Jewish population increased or decreased by several hundred within four or five years. The cause for this was the instability of the economic and security situation. Consequently, they often migrated from the smaller villages to, to the larger ones, and from there to the larger town, to large towns. Every pogrom caused the local Jews to flee to neighboring communities for long or for short periods until the danger was the past. In the 20th century, the use of motor vehicles was an important reason for the removal of, of commerce from the smaller centers to the larger ones. Since there are no official statistics, the travels relied solely on estimates. According to the memoirs of Benjamin of Tuladea and Petathia of Resenberg, there are about 100 Jewish settlements and substantial Jewish population in Kurdistan in the 12th century. Benjamin of Tuladea tu, uh, also gives his account of David Alroy, the Messianic leader from central Kurdistan, who rebelled against the kings of per kings, king of Persia and had plans to lead the Jews back to Jerusalem. These travelers also reported on well-established and wealthy Jewish communities in Mosul, which was the commercial and spiritual center of Kurdistan. Many Jews, fearful of approaching crusaders, had fled from Syria and Palestine to Babylonian Kurdistan. 
the Jews of Mosul enjoyed some degree of autonomy in managing their own community. In the 12th century CE, some Jews fled violent crusaders in Syria and the land of Israel, finding refuge among the Jewish communities of Kurdistan. In the mid-13th century CE, Iraqi Jews fled, uh, fled from major Jewish community centers like Baghdad and as, Mongol, as Mongols captured the area. Many moved uh, north and west into Kurdish areas, joining the vibrant Jewish communities there. As Jews, pour, as Jews poured from the land of Israel into Kurdish areas, David Alroy, an infamous Kurdish Jew figure, Jewish figure, arose. In the 12th century in the city of Ahmadiyya, he raised a Jewish army and prepared to march to Jerusalem and liberate the city from the Crusaders. Before his Jewish words could depart on, on its mission, David Alroy was killed. Each community was headed by the Chacham, who was also Hassan, Mochel, Shochet, and Bodek, exa examiner of slaughtered animals, treasurer, uh, teacher, scribe, and writer of amulets. The smaller communities were subordinate to the larger ones. In all religious and legal matters, they turned to the rabbis of Baghdad. Religious and spiritual life was centered around the synagogue and the Talmud Torah. In large communities, there were several synagogues, some of which were very old. The one built, one built in Mosul in 1210 in Mosul, and the second in 1228 in Madiya. The Alliance opened open schools only in the towns of Mosul in 1900 and 1906, and Kirkuk in 1912. One of the greatest uh, Jewish scholars from Kurdish lands was a woman named Azna Barzani, who, who led a respected yeshiva in the town of Mosul in present-day Iraq in the 1600s. Azna's father, Rabbi Shmuel ben Natanel Halevi of Kurdistan, built the school in Mosul to train a new generation of Jewish scholars, including his daughter. Perhaps because he had no sons, Rabbi Shmuel lavished care and attention to, on his daughter's studies. In the 17th century, Kurdistan's Jewish community had, re, had a renowned uh, re, female religious leader. After her husband passed away, Asnat Barzani came, became widely recognized as Kurdistan's premier Torah scholar. Ta'anit Ta Asnath Barzani, who lived in Mosul from 1590 to 1760, oh wow, that's 80 years, that's a pretty long life, was the daughter of Rabbi Samuel Barzani of Kurdistan. She later, make a, she, later, she later married Jacob Mizrahi, rabbi of Ahmadiyya, in Iraqi Kurdistan, who lectured at a yeshiva. She was famous for her knowledge of, of the Torah, Talmud, Kabbalah, and Jewish law. After the early death of her husband, she be, uh, uh, this is also like kind of a unique thing because usually in, in Kurdistan, you know, women weren't educated, as I said before in the earlier sections, women were not educated like that much. They just basically just worked in the field and, you know, they kind of did housework and stuff like that. And so, like, this is like a very unique thing. After... The early death of her husband, she became the head of the yeshiva at Ahmadiyya, and eventually was recognized as the chief instructor of Torah in Kurdistan. She was called Ta'anit, female Talmudic scholar, practiced mysticism, and was reputed to, known, to, known, to have known the secret names of God. Asnad is also well known for her poetry and an excellent command of the Hebrew language. She wrote a long poem of lament and petition in traditional rhyme met metrical form. Her poems are among the few examples of the early modern Hebrew texts written by women. Immigration of Kurdish Jews to the land of Israel initiated during the 16th century with a community of rabbinic scholars arriving in Safed Ga Galilee and a Jewish and a Jewish Kurdish Jewish quarter had been established there as a result. The thriving period of Safed, however, ended in 1660 with Jewish power struggles in the region and economic decline. Prior to the 19th century, the large communities were headed by Nisa'im, who imposed their authority on the public and collected special taxes. The Nasi was also called Shotir, officer of the law, or Sar, minister. The Chahanim were also subordinate to them, or rabbis. Uh, this position was abolished during the 19th century. From the beginning of the 16th century, there were several rabbis or Adoni, or Barazani, 
Mizrahi, Dugar, and Harari families. Some of them practiced Kabbalah, and various legends were woven around them. About 30 Kurdish Batanim are known for the inhabitants of Barazan, Masul, Ahmadiyya, Harir, Napsin, Sakho, and other places. They wrote religious and secular poems in Hebrew and Aramaic. 54 of them were published by Abraham ben Jacob in his book Kehilat Yehude, Kurdistan. Each community was headed by the Chacham, who was also Hassan, Mohel, Shochet, and Bodek, examiner of slaughtered animals, teacher, treasurer, teacher, scribe, and writer of amulets. The smaller communities were subordinate to the larger ones. In all religious and legal matters, they turned to the rabbis of Baghdad. Religious and spiritual life were centered around the synagogue and the Talmud Torah. In the, in the large communities, there were several synagogues, some of which were very, were very old. One was built in 1210 in Masul, and a second in 1228 in Ahmadiyya. The Universei only opened, only opened schools only in the towns of Masul in 1900 and 1906, and Kirkuk in 1912. A Babylonian Jewish community survived the Arab conquest, the Arab conquest, the Mongol invasion, and the Ottoman Empire. By the 19th century, a major Jewish population had moved to Baghdad, while other Jewish communities remained scattered across difficult terrain in what is today northern Iraq and adjacent territories in Iran. Local, Ju local Jews described the major renovation of the tomb in, in 1796, paid for by wealthy Jews from Iraq and India. The tomb was owned and operated by the local Jewish community and was a sumptuous center of, of gathering. A visitor during World War I described its plunder. The floors were covered with beautiful Persian rugs, and hundreds of notes with Hebrew pages on them covered the walls. The building also had lodging rooms where visitors could pray, stand, stay and pray. Uh, David de Beth Hela, a Lithuanian Jew Jewish traveler who went to Kurdistan in 1827, wrote of a Jewish community in Zacho, three days' journey to Syria or Mosul, who were ignorant both of the Hebrew language and customs. He saw the Nazarenes, Christians, in this case Assyrians, who follow the same customs and have the same Aramaic language as the Jews, separated from the Kurdish families, denominated Mohoptemians, and speaking their own language. By the time the final migration of Kurdistani Jews to, to Israel took place in the early 1950s, they comprised about 25,000, with around 8,000 to 10,000 8 10, having already made Aliyah. There are, all, there are no coherent historical records of the past except some scattered information gathered from Jews, Jewish, and non-Jewish travelogues. Rabbi David de Beth Hillel visited the following settlements of the Iranian Kurd Jewish Kurds around 1827 to 1880, 1827 and 1828. Bane, where 10 Jewish families lived together with 1,000 Muslim families, they were poor and possessed one synagogue. 15 Jewish families uh, Rabbi David uh, mentions a village where 10 Jewish families lived, but he did not give its name. Most probably it was a village in Tate Kale. In Armea, name changed to Rezaya, 2,000 Jewish families lived among 60,000 Muslims, who, according to the traveler, were wicked and spoke Persian, Turkish, and, Kur and Kurdish. Jews had three synagogues, and, mo and most of them lived comfortably. The rabbi of the Jewish community was a rich man. The Christians... Were, there were more more mistreated than the Jews. The beautiful city of Salma, changed to Shapur, Shapur, had 100 Jewish and 400 Christian families and 10,000 Muslim inhabitants. Most of the Jews were rich. They had one fine synagogue in the city of Bashkale. There, there lived 20 Jewish, 100 Christian, and 2,000 Muslim families. Most of the Jews were rich, and they had one small synagogue. In the small town of Medinob, there were 15 Jewish families among 4,000 Muslims. The town had no Christians. In 1801, a violent program 
befell the Jews of the city as a result of a blood level. The town of Garus had 25 Jewish families living among 3,000 Muslim families. Some of the Jews were rich. There are no Christians in the town. In the big city of Sene, name later changed to Sanajaj, there were, there were 3,000 Jewish families among 50,000 Muslim families. They had two synagogues and some rich merchants. In the small town of Kosan, five Jewish families lived among 1,000 Muslims. No Christians lived there. The economic situation of the Jews was very difficult. Many of them live in poverty and distress. The urban Jews were essentially engaged in commerce and crafts. Several of them own estates with, with peasants and agricultural laborers. laborers. In e eastern Kurdistan, the number of merchants was greater than of the craftsmen. These tradesmen could be divided into wholesalers, shopkeepers, and peddlers. The, crafts, the craftsmen were weavers, gold and silversmiths, dyers, carpenters, tanners, cobblers, and unskilled workers. There are no bankers among the Jews. This occupation being in the hands of the feudal lords. The Jewish families, the Jewish farmers cultivated mainly wheat, barley, rice, sesame, lentils, and tobacco. They owned orchards, vineyards, flocks of sheep, and herds of cattle. There were also, there was also agricultural villages. All of those who inhabitants were Jewish. Uh, for example, Sindur. Jewish pe peasants were mainly found in Romadis, Telkabar, Barazan, Dechok, Araka, Shanduka, Bitanura, Bashkala, Korsinat, Mira, Karada, and Girinzal. Girinzal. Years in Gaul. As a result of the droughts, famines broke out in several places, 1880, 1888, 1889, etc., and their inhabitants were com compelled to migrate to other places. Many, fe many fled to Baghdad, where they found employment in various occupations. The Jews of Kurdistan are known for their strength and sturdiness. Stability and prosperity, however, did not last long. The, boards of the reports of later travelers, as well as local documents and manuscripts, indicate that Kur Kurdistan, except for some short periods, suffered grievously from armed conflicts between the central government in Turkey and the local tribal, tri tribal chieftains. As a result, the Muslim, as well as the Jewish and Christian populations, declined. Many localities that had been earlier been reported to large Jewish populations were reduced to few families, or none at all. The U.S. missionary Ashal Grant visited the once important town of Ahmadiyya in 1839. He hardly found any inhabitants. Only 200 of the 1,000 homes were occupied. 250 of 1,000 homes were occupied. The rest were demolished or uninhabitable. In more recent times, Ahmadiyya has, has, has had only about 400 Jews. Nera, a, one in, once important, a once an important Jewish center, was set on fire by a raid chieftain just before the outbreak of World War I, destroying, among other things, the synagogues and all the Torah schools therein. As a result, with the exception of three families, all the Jews fled the town and wandered off to other places, such as Mosul and Zaho. In modern times, the latter has been one of the few places in Kurdistan proper with a substantial Jewish population, about 5,000 5, in 1945. In the early 20th century, Kurdish Jews numbered between 20,000 and 30,000 and lived in towns and villages from Iran to Iraq. The Kurdish Jews were highly regarded throughout Kurdistan, and when in the 1950s most Kurdish Jews left to Israel, left behind neighbors and friends who took care of their friends' synagogues, in some cases for years. Today, almost all the Jewish Kurds live in Israel, numbering around 200,000. The lives of the Jews of Kurdistan were subject to anarchy. Political and economic factors determined the places of residence among their migrations from one place to another. They're scattered in many villages and lived among various Muslim and Christian sects. Uh, robbery and murder were common, common occurrences. Because of their isolation from the outside world, no concern was shown for them. The per their persons and belongings were enslaved to, the to feudal rulers in order to safeguard their lives. They were compelled to seek the protection of the powerful Aga, to whom they, ha they, they paid a special tax. He was a kind of tribal chief who traveled about accompanied by groups and of armed servants. The Jews subordinated some to him and fulfilled his orders. Some of the Aga sold 
Jews or gave them away as presents. This servitude continued until, be until the beginning of the 20th century. In 1912, 12 Jews were murdered in Kurdistan. For them, this was a sign to liquidate their affairs and sell their fields and, ha and, and houses at a low price in order to emigrate to Palestine. The anti-Zionist propaganda, which began in Iraq in 1925, adversely affected the position of the Jews of Kurdistan. The persecutions gained intensity from day to day and reached the heart of the time of the revolt of Rashid Ali in 1941. With the establishment of State of Israel, most of them traveled to Baghdad and flew, and flew there, and from there flew to Israel in the Operation Ezra and Nehemia. In 1970, a small number of Kurdish Jews remained in the region of the Iran, Turkey, and Syria. Dozens of emissaries from Palestine visited Kurdistan. They noticed the Jews' sympathy for foreign contributions to the, to the Holy Land. The Aliyah to Palestine began in this, during the 16th century. The first immigrants lived in Savet. Between 1920 and 1926, 1,900 Kurdish Jews emigrated to Palestine. In 1935, 2,500 Jews emigrated. With the establishment of the State of Israel, almost all the Jews of, of Iraqi Kurdistan and from many other places emigrated there. In Israel, they formed communities according to the provinces and towns where they live in Kurdistan and are scattered in many towns and settlements and with a large proportion living in, in and around Jerusalem. The Jews under British occupation from 1970 to 1921 enjoyed full rights of equality and freedom as, as well as a feeling of security. The majority of Jews considered themselves as British citizens. Some grew rich, others were employed in the, in the British administration, especially in Baghdad and Basra. They were interested in the con continuation of British rule, and they expressed this in 1918, only after a week after armistice went into effect, when the Jewish communities of Baghdad presented a petition to the civil commissioner of Baghdad asking him to make them British subjects. Twice again in 1919 and 1920, the Jews of Iraq appealed to the, to the British High Commission and to not allow an Aaron government to come to power, or at least grant British citizenship to the Jewish community en masse. The British authorities rejected this request, and the Jews were eventually appeased by personal assurances that ample, guarantee would be, ample guarantees would be afforded. However, when in April, April 1930, the League of Nations decided to adopt the mandate, the Jewish leaders decided to support the establishment of an Iraqi state under the British, British mandate. The Jews were given further assurances by Amir Faisal, who was the British breeding candidate for the Iraqi throne. The new monarch-to-be made numerous speeches, including one before the Jewish community of Baghdad on July 18, 1921, one month before his coronation, in which he emphasized the equality of all Iraqis, irrespective of religion. King Faisal continued to maintain the cordial position per, maintain cordial personal relations with individual members of the Jewish elite through his 12-year reign. As his finance minister, he appointed, he appointed Sir Sassan Heskel, the only Jew who ever, who, held, who ever held cabinet rank in Iraq. Four members represented the Jews in the Iraqi parliament. In 1946, the number increased to six. In the Senate, Menachem Salih Daniel represented him after his son, Ezra Daniel. Because of their gener generally superior el educational qualifications, Jews and Christians could be found in, in the civil service during the first decade of the kingdom, while still under the British mandate. However, as early as 1921, a strong Arab nationalist element rejected the employment of foreigners and non-Muslims. The opposition intensified after Iraq gained full independence in 1932 and became even stronger after the death of Faisal the following year. Iraqi Jews did not know the kind of anti-Semitism that prevailed in some Christian states of Europe. The first attempt to copy modern Euro European anti-Semitic libels was made in 1924 by Sadiq Rasul al-Qadiri, a former officer in the White Russian Army. He published his views, particularly that of a worldwide conspiracy, in a Baghdadi newspaper. The Jewish response in its own weekly newspaper, Al-Musbah, comp compelled Al-Qadiri to apologize, although he later published his anti-Semitic memoirs.
at that time, the, the press uh, drew a clear dividing line between Judaism and Zionism. This line be became blurred in the 1930s, along with the demand to remove Jews from the genealogical tree of the Semitic peoples. The, this anti-Jewish trend coincided with Faisal's death in 1933, which brought ab about a noticeable change for the Jewish community. His death also came at the same time as the Syrian massacre, which created a climate of insecurity among the minorities. Iraqi Jewry at the time had been subject to threats and incentives emanating not only from extremist elements, but also from the official state institutions as well as Dr. Sami Shawkat, a high official in the Ministry of Education in the pre-war years and for a while its general director, director general, was the head of Al-Futua, an imitation of Hitler's youth. In one of his addresses, the professor of death he called an, an Iraqi youth to, to adopt the way of life of Nazi fascists. In another speak he, speech, he branded Jews as the enemy from within, who should be treated accordingly. In another, he praised Hitler and Mussolini for eradicating their eternal enemies, i.e. the Jews. Syrian and Palestinian teachers often sported shakat in his preaching. The German ambassador, Dr. F. Groba, distributing Nazi, Nazi distributed funds and Nazi films, books, and pamphlets in the capital Iraq, mostly sponsoring the anti- British and the Nationalists. Groba also serialized Hitler's book Mein Kampf in the daily newspaper. He and his German cadre maintained a great influence upon the leadership of the state and upon many classes of the Iraqi people, especially through the directors of the Ministry of Education. The first anti-Jewish attack Act occurred in September 1934, when 10 Jews were dismissed from their posts in the Ministry of Economics and Communications. From then on, an unofficial quota was fixed for the number of Jews to be appointed to the civil service. Pro-Palestinian, anti-British, anti-Jewish, and anti-Zionist sentiments rose to new heights in Iraq in 1936. The Arab general strike and revolt, which erupted in Palestine that year, gave the conflict a new centrality in Arab politics. The atmosphere in Baghdad became highly charged. The Committee for the Defense of Palestine circulated anti-Jewish pamphlets. Over a four-week period, extending, extending from mid-September mid to mid-October, three Jews were murdered in Baghdad and Basra. A bomb, which however failed to explode, was thrown into Baghdadi synagogue on Yom Kippur. Several other bombs were thrown at Jewish clubs, and street gangs roughed up a number of Jews. The president of the Baghdadi Jewish community, Rabbi Sassoon Kadori, who was himself a staunch anti-Zionist, issued a public statement in response to a demand from the national press, affirming the loyalty to the Arab cause in Palestine and disassociating Iraqi Jewry from Zionism. This does not bring about any real improvement in the situation, and in August 1937, incidents against the Jews were renewed, fostered, and then later by Syrians and Palestinians who had settled in Iraq. On June 1st, the first day of Shavuot, which in Iraq was traditionally marked by joyous pilgrimages to the tomb of holy men and visits of friends and relatives, the Hashemite regent, Abd Allah, returned to the capital from his exile in Transjordan. A festive crowd of Jews crossed over the west bank of the Tigris River to welcome the returning prince. On the way back, a group of soldiers who were soon joined by civilians turned on the Jews and attacked them. Killing and injuring, killing one and injuring others. Anti-Jewish riots soon spread throughout the city, especially on the east banks of the Tigris, where most of the Jews lived. By nightfall, a major pogrom was underway, led by soldiers and paramilitary youth gangs, followed by a mob. The rampage of murder and plunder in the Jewish neighborhoods and businesses districts continued until the afternoon of the following day, when the region finally gave orders for the police to fire upon the rioters and Kurdish troops. And, and Kurdish troops were brought in were brought in to maintain order. 
in the Farhud, 179 Jews of both sexes and all ages were killed, 242 children were left orphans, and 586 businesses were looted, 911 buildings housing more than 911 buildings housing more than 12,000 people were pillaged. The total property loss was an estimated by the Jewish community's own investigating investigating committee to be approximately 680,000 pounds. The Farhud dramatically undermined the confidence of all Iraqi Jewry, and like the Syrian massacres of 1933, had a, had a highly unsettling effect uh, upon all the Iraqi minorities. Nevertheless, many Jews tried to convince themselves that the worst was over. A factor in this was the commercial boom, boom during the war, of which the Jewish business community was the prime beneficiary. Another factor was the tranquility which prevailed during the next years of the war, but the shadow of the Farhud continued to hover for years. The program is a split caused between the youth uh, of the Jewish community and its traditional leadership. The new generation turned to two separate directions, the communist and the Zionist movements, the activity of both being underground. The Zionist movement renewed its activity in March 1942 by forming the youth organization called Tanuat Lehatzlut, the pioneer movement, and the paramilitary youth, Haganah, among Iraqi Jews. Contrary to the, com to the communist underground, the Zionists did not work against the regime. They concentrated on teaching Hebrew and educating the young generation to Zionism and pioneering. A main purpose was to convince the Jews, mainly the youth, to immigrate to Eretz Israel. It's Eretz Israel, or the land of Israel. The ranks of the Zionist movement in Iraq, uh, in Iraq increased when World War II was over, and the Iraqi press began to address the Palestine question. The Zionist underground organizations in Iraq, despite some crises, were flooded from 1945 until 1951 with requests for joining. The most dangerous crisis was that in October 1949, which nearly wiped out the Zionist movement in Iraq. The Iraqi authorities arrested about 50 Jews who were accused of Zionism and court-martialed. The second crisis that was that of May uh, to June 1951, when the evacuation of the Jews was nearing its end, and the Iraqi government uncovered a spy ring in Baghdad, run by two foreigners, Yehuda Tajir and Rodney, who were arrested. The authorities were also discovered explosive, explosives, guns, files, typewriters, presses, and mem membership lists hidden in synagogues or buried in private homes. As a result, the po police arrested about 80 Jews. 13 of them were sentenced to long-term imprisonment. Two others, Yosef Basri and Shalom Saleh, were sentenced de to death and hanged on January 19, 1952. By, by June 15, 1961, the order was given to the Zionist underground to cease its activity in Iraq. When World War II was over. The, the, the former pro-Nazi followers were released and bang, began anew their activities and assignment against the Jews. The General Assembly voted in favor of the partition of Palestine on November 29, 1947. Increased tensions between the Arab and Jews in Iraq and the, author, and the authorities started to oppress the Jews. There's no doubt that there were several dozen towns and villages where Jewish Kurds lived. Reports about some of them came from before their immigration to the state of Israel, in addition to what have been mentioned above. We hear of towns and villages such as Bajar, Bukan, Gavarea, Marnivan, Nate, Oshinive, Korve, Shazdash, Shanjindez, Solos, Takab, and others. In 1948, the Jewish agency in Tehran estimated the total number of Jewish Kurds in Iran, Iraq, and Turkey at about 50,000, of which 15,000 of them lived in Iran. It is possible that the real figures were higher. Almost all of them were preparing themselves for Aliyah to the Jewish state. In general, relative to other Jewish communities across Iran, Jewish Kurds had corrected them, cor correct relations with Muslims, particularly with the Sunnis. The Arab-Israeli conflict aggravated their fragile relations. However, by the end of the 20th century, a small number of Jews were reported to have been living in large cities of Kurdistan, such as Sanajaz and Mahabad. In Israel, the Jewish Kurds of Iran separated themselves from those of other countries. They have their separate organizations 
organizations and even planned their feasts on the last day of Passover on different days and under different names. Surinayah for the Kurds of Iran and Sarana for other Jewish Kurds. Their common periodical in Israel is called Hasashut. The declaration of martial law before sending Iraqi troops to Palestine marked the beginning of the official anti-Semitism. At first, it was directly mainly, mainly against communists, but was soon used to against the Jews, when it, became, when it became clear that the Arab offensive in Palestine was encountering serious difficulties. Now, the Iraqi authorities seemed to increase, increasingly to willingly to accommodate anti-Jewish demands as a means of diverting the attention of, Iraqi, of the Iraqi population from the failure in Palestine from concern with social and political reforms. From now on, abuses and restrictions characterized the life of Jews in Iraq. Restrictions were imposed on travel abroad and disposal property. Hundreds of, Jew hundreds of Jews were dismissed from public service. Efforts were made to eliminate Jews from the army and the police. They were prohibited from buying, selling, and buying and selling property, and they're also discriminated against in obtaining the necessary licenses and granting access to, to some professions. At the same time, the nationalist press opened with aggressive attacks against the Jews, practiced practically daily. The this longest-standing distinction between Judaism and Zionism with was fast becoming blurred. The Jews were held responsible for the economic hardship faced by Iraq in, in 1948 to 1949, and the leaders were threatened by the national press. The most important effect, which shook the Jewish community to its core, was the hanging of Shafiq Adas, one of the wealthiest Jews in the country. In the front of the House of Basra on September 23, 1948, Adas was condemned on the unlikely charge of having su supplied scrap metal to the Zionist state. When Adas was ex executed, about 4, 450 Jews were put in the jails. Added to these were those arrested for the following year, in, October, in early October 1949. The, 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 the detainees were set, sentenced to terms of imprisonment ranging from 2 to 10 years. In carrying out the arrests, the police also arrested another 700 Jews and released them after investigation. Most of them were relatives of those who were brought before martial courts. Throughout 1949, the general disaffection of Iraqi Jewry was exacerbated. With this atmosphere, with this atmosphere Jewish Jews were fleeing the country. The clandestine of crossing of the Iranian border began to assume major proportions. Within a few months, in 1950, about 10,000 Jew Jews fled Iraq in this way. Once in Iran, most Iraqi Jews were directed to the larger refugee camp administered by the Joint Distribution Community near Tehran, from there which they are lifted to Israel. In an attempt to stabilize the situation and to solve the Jewish problem, the government introduced a bill in the Iraqi parliament at the beginning of March 1950 that would in effect permit Jews who desire to leave the country for good to do so after renouncing their Iraqi citizenship. The bill also provided for the denaturalization of those Jews who already left the country. The bill was duly passed in the Chamber of Deputies as the Senate Law No. 1 of 1950. Iraqi government officials thought their own that thought there only about six thousand to seven hundred and seven thousand and at most ten thousand Jews would take advantage of this new law. The British di diplomats in Baghdad and the Israelis shared this view as well. They were mistaken. The Jews were tired of life in Iraq. And when the Zionist organization in Iraq issued a call at the end of Passover, April 8, 1950, for Jews to come forward and register for emigration in the centers which had been set up at the major synagogues, the call was highly effective. The overwhelming majority of the Jewish community preferred to leave their birthplace. By July 5, 1951, about 105,000 had arrived in Israel. On March 10, 1951, only one day after the registration deadline is passed, while nearly 65,000 Jews were waiting for departure, the authorities enacted a law which froze the assets of all departing Jews and placed them under the control of the government bureau. Parliament passed a second law, which occurred that those Iraqi Jews who were abroad did not return and, not did, and did not return home with a specific period would for, forfeit both the nationality and their property. Although some individuals succeeded in smuggling out, out some money after March 10, 1951, many more were reduced to paupiers, paupers. 
being allowed to take out only 50 dinars, $140 for adult, and 20 to 40, 30 dinars, 56 to $84 for minor, depending upon the age. About 6,000 6, Jews preferred to remain in Iraq after the mass emigration. Over the years, this number fell to 4,700 in 1957 and about 3,000 in 1968, when the Ba'ath party came to power in Iraq. The numbers continued to decline in the early 21st century. There are only a handful of Jews still living in Iraq. Most of those remaining were the elite and the rich families who believed that the violent storm which had marked Jewish life in Iraq before and during the mass emigration would pass. The Jewish community, which, which consisted before the, before the mass emigration of, of about one quarter of the population of Baghdad, now has become a small and unimportant one. The Jews no longer dominated the economy and the financial life of the country, and, and Jewish youth posed no danger to, to the regime through, through activities in the communist underground. So the regime moved, removed some of its, the restrictions, and the pressures upon them was lightened to some degree. But in principle, the antagonistic attitude to them, antagonistic attitude to them remained. Still enforced were the restrictions on Jews registering in the universities and the sanction of taking away Iraqi nationality from those who did not return to the country within a limited time, which was marked in their passports. In 1954, the authorities nationalized the, the Jewish Mayor Elias Hospital, which was the most modern and largest in Iraq. The Iraqi government has also appropriated from the Jewish community the Rima Kaduri Hospital, which treated eye diseases. Relief came under the Brigadier uh, Abd al-Karim Qasim, who toppled the monarchy by a military revolution on July 4, 1958. Qasim canceled all the restrictions against the Jews. He also re re released Yehuda Tajir and let him go back to Israel. The Jewish Golden Age under Qasim was affected by the confiscation and destruction of the Jewish cemetery, located in the middle of the capital, in order to build the tower to immortalize his name. Qasim was assassinated by Colonel Abd al-Salam Arif, who carried out a hand of successful coup on February 13, 1963. The news rulers reinstated all the restrictions which had been enforced before Qasim had added others. Passports were not to be issued to Jews. The Jews were prevented from d discounting their promissory notes and it was prohibited to grant them credit in the, then, in the then nationalized banks. Again, Jewish students were not to be admitted to government colleges. A warning, a warning was issued to all Jews abroad to return to Iraq within three months. Otherwise, they'd be denationalized and their, and their movable, and movable property in Iraq would be sequestrated. Jews were not allowed to sell were not allowed to sell their landed property. After the Six-Day War, the situation in Iraq of, of the Iraqi Jews worsened more. They were terrorized and cr cruelly persecuted. The government opened with a series of detentions, enacted laws, and issued instructions which brought the Jewish community to the thresholds of invasion. The measures taken against the small, isolated Jewish community of, the ba of Baghdad after the Six-Day War included warning the public not to cooperate with them, expelling them from all social clubs, deriving, depriving Jewish importers and pharmacists of the licenses, prohibiting all transactions with Jews, including access to the banks, prohibiting them from selling their cars and furniture, and cutting off all telephone communication from the homes, offices, or stores. Under the Ba'ath regime, the persecution increased and many Jews reached starvation, le reached starvation level. Some were jailed, accused of... Uh, of spying or held without any formal charge. Within one year, from January 1969 to January 1970, 13 were hanged. Up to, the April, up to April 1973, the total number of Jews hanged, murdered, kidnapped, or who simply disappeared reached 46. A dozen more were jailed. The shock following the execution of the, in, of the innocent Jews caused repercussions throughout the world, and the world conscience was aroused. The Iraqi government responded to the world reaction by relaxing, for a while, some of its anti-Jewish discriminatory measures, including those limiting travel in Baghdad and through, throughout Iraq too. At the same time, a peace treaty was signed between the Iraqi government and the Kurdish rebels. Some Jews seized the opportunity and escaped across the Kurdish mountains. 
in the September of 1970 for the Iranian frontier. Up to 300 Jews fled the country in this way. In September 1971, the authorities began to issue passports to the Jews, and about 1,300 Jews left Iraq legally. They sought refuge in mainly England, Canada, the United States, and Israel. In 1975, the Jews in Iraq numbered around over about 350. Uh, over this over over time, uh, this figure declined further, reaching 120 in 1996. At the beginning of the of the 21st century, as stated, there were only a handful of Jews there. Thus, this thus came its end to the most ancient diaspora of the Jewish people. Since the early 20th century, some Kurdish Jews have been active in the Zionist movement. One of the false members, members, one of the false famous members of Lehi, Freedom Fighters of Israel, was Moshe Barzani, whose family immigrated from Iraqi Kurdistan and settled in Jerusalem in the late, in the late 1920s. The vast majority of, of Kurdish Jews were forced out of Iraqi Kurdistan and evacuated to Israel in the early 1950s, together with the Iraqi Jewish community. The vast majority of the Kurdish Jews of Iranian, Iranian Kurdistan relocated mostly to Israel as well in the 1950s. The lives of the Jews of Kurdistan were subject to anarchy. Political and economic factors determined their place of residence and their migrations from one place to another. They were scattered into Malay villages and lived on, um, among various Muslim and Christian sects. sects. Robbery and murder, murder were common occurrences. Because of their isolation from the outside world, no concern was shown for them. The persons and belongings were slaves to feudal rulers. In order to safeguard their lives, they were compelled to seek the protection of powerful Aga, to whom they had to pay a special tax. He was a kind of tribal chief who traveled, about, who traveled about accompanied by groups of armed servants. The Jews subordinated themselves to him and accompanied by a group of armed servants. The Jews subordinated themselves to him and fulfilled his orders. Some of the Agats sold Jews or gave them ways of presence. This servitude con concluded, continued until the beginning of the 20th century. In 1912, 12 Jews were murdered in Kurdistan. For them, this was a sign to liquidate their affairs and sell their fields and houses at a low price in order to immigrate to Palestine. The anti-Zionist propaganda, which began in Iraq in 1925, adversely affected the positions of the Jews of Kurdistan. The persecutions gained intensely from day to day and reached their height, reached their their height at the time of the revolt of al-Rashid Ali, Al Ali in 1941 with the establishment of the State of Israel. Most of them traveled to Baghdad and from there flew to, to Israel in Operation Ezra and Nehemiah. In 1970, a small number of Kurdish Jews remained in the regions of Iran, Turkey, and Syria. Jew Jews from Kurdish lands were intensely Zionists, genera generations longed to return to the land of Israel from where their ancestors originally came. Jew Jews in Kurdish areas had contact with travelers and rabbis from the land of Israel and learned Torah and heard the news from them. In the 16th century, Kurdish Jews began moving to the land of Israel, settling in the city of Safed. Thousands moved to Israel during the 1920s and 30s. Until their immigration to Israel in the 1940s and 50s, the Jews of Kurdistan lived as close ethnic community. The Jews of Kurdistan largely spoke Aramaic and Kurdish dialects, in particular the Kermanji dialect in Iraqi Kurdistan. Today, the vast majority of Kurdistan's Jews live in Israel. Despite its vibrancy, life was hard for Jews in Kurdistan. Well, life was hard for Jews in Kurdish lands. Tribal skirmishes posed danger to many groups, including Jews, and the harsh, area's harsh landscape made it difficult to farm and thrive. After 1948, when the State of Israel was established, life became even more difficult for Kurdish Jews, most of whom live in present-day Iraq. Iraqi's government passed a series of harsh decrees against Iraqi Jews, seizing their assets and stripping away many Jews of citizenship. The fledgling nation of Israel came to rescue of Iraqi Jews, air airlifting the approximately 25,000 then living in Kurdish areas. Between 1949 and 1952, a series of airlifts called Operation Ezra Nehemiah, in honor of the ancient leaders who helped restore Jewish life in Israel, brought over 120,000 Iraqi Jews to Israel. Many Jews from Kurdish lands settled in Jerusalem, 
often helped to flee the country by the friendly Kurdish neighbors. Virtually all other Jews from Kurdish areas followed their brethren to the Jewish state. It's estimated that only a handful of Jews living, remain living in Kurdish lands today. After Jew, Jew, Kurdish Jews fled from the home from Israel in 1950, the tomb of the home was cared for by a local Chaldean and Christian family. They were not able to keep it up, and today the building is largely in ruins. The tomb was largely located in a Christian village and is about 30 miles north of the Iraqi city of Mosul, which was the site of many bloody battles recently between ISIS fighters and local Kurds. Kurdish Peshmerga forces prote protected Nahum's tomb through, through the fighting, preventing ISIS forces from, from destroying it completely. Ties between Israel and the Kurds first started in the 1960s, when the Kurds had smuggled the remaining Jews out of Iraq after decades of rent rent rising anti-Semitism, which included programs, public executions, and discriminatory laws. Kurdish leaders directly played a role in smuggling Jews out, according to Zvi Samir, former head of the Mossad. According to Yossi Alfer and his periphery, Israel's search for Middle Eastern allies. Zemir once recounted the story of a Jewish woman meeting Kurdish leader Mullah Mastani, Mustafa Barzani on her journey out of the region. The woman attempted to give Barzani a necklace in appreciation of what he to, of appreciation, to which he instead directed her to give it to the Prime Minister of Israel. In the same interaction, Barzani said, Israel is the state of the Jews. There's no other country to which we, we Kurds owe so much. The economic boom of the 1960s and 1970s in Iran benefited the Jews too. Many Jews became rich, which enabled them to provide higher education for the children. In 1978, there were about 80,000 Jews in the country, constituting one quarter of 1% of the general population. Of these Jews, 10% were very rich. The same percentage were poor, aided by the Joint the joint distribution committee and the rest were, were classified as middle class to rich approximately 70 out of 4,000 academians teaching at iranian universities were jews 600 jewish physicians constituted six percent of the country's medical doctors there are 4,000 jewish students studying in all the universities representing four percent of the total number of students never in their history were the jews of iran elevated to such a degree of affluence education and professionally as they were the, in the last decade of the shah's regime all this changed with the emergence of the islamic public of iran it was estimated that during the first 10 years of the Islamist, uh, Islamic regime, about 60,000 Jews left Iran. The rest, some 20,000 remained in Tehran, Shiraz, Ishafan, and other provincial cities. Of the 60,000 Jews that emigrated, about 35,000 preferred to immigrate to the U.S. Some 20,000 left for Israel, and the remaining 5,000 chose to live in Europe, mainly England, France, Germany, Italy, or Switzerland. The spread of the Iranian Jews in the U.S. provides us with the following de demographic map. Of the total 35,000, some 25,000 live in California, of whom about 20,000 prefer to dwell in Los Angeles. 8,000 Iranian Jews live in the city of New York and on Long Island. The, two, the remaining 2,000 live on, on other cities, mainly Boston, Baltimore, Washington, Detroit, or Chicago. Meanwhile, the Kurds were receiving humanitarian aid and assistance from Israel. After hearing of the severe poverty the Kurdish Jews were facing, Israeli Prime Minister Goldia Meir, then Foreign Minister, allow, allow, allocated the Kurds $100,000 in 1963. Soon after, the humanitarian aid expanded to military assisting for training, arms, and ammunition, and eventually anti-aircraft weaponry. weaponry. In 1980, Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin admitted that the Israelis assisted the Kurds during the uprising against the Iraqis between 1965 and 1975. In 1968 and 1973, Barzani visited Israel to meet Israeli officials, including Levi Eskul and Mir, the Prime Ministers in those years, respectively. In 1975, the relationship came to halt after Iraq and Iran signed the Algiers Agreement, which declared the two countries would work together to end the Kurdish rebellion and that Iran would close off Israel's access to Iraqi Kurdistan. A few years later, relations resumed but were discreet. 
The, time, the Times of Israel reported on September 30th, 2013, Today there are almost 200,000 Kurdish Jews in Israel, about half of whom live in Jerusalem. There are also over 30 agricultural villages throughout the country that were founded by Kurdish Jews. On October 18, 2015, the Kurdistan Regional Government named Sherzad Omar Masami as the representative of the Jewish community at the Ministry of Endowment and Religious Affairs, but he was dismissed following assertions by the Jewish community in Israel that there were, were no remaining Jews in the Kurdistan region. The Kurdish pa Parliament passed new laws in May 2015 which established the government departments dealing with seven religious minorities in the region, including the Baha'i, Zoroastrians, Yazidis, and Jews. Shirzad Omar Masani was named the Jewish Affairs Representative in Kurdistan in late 2015, with a job of showing hospitality to local Jews and fostering all positive relations with Israel and the Jewish people worldwide. Masani was placed in charge of all Jews of Kurdish origin, whose number, whose number is close to 300,000 and mostly reside in Israel. Israel and the Iraqi Kurds have also enjoyed economic cooperation in the recent years. Israel accepted a large Kurdish oil shipment in June of 2014. At the peak of the Kurdish struggle against ISIS, the purchase was a significant help to the Kurdish government at a time of, of economic crisis. In May and, April and August of 2015, Israel imported 14 million barrels of Kurdish oil, encompassing 77% of the Israeli demand during that period. It is important to note that the Kurds were exporting oil to Israel against the wishes of the Iraqi federal government and were strongly condemned for doing so. In 2017, Israel is the only country to publicly announce its support for Kurdish independence after, Kurdish, after the Kurdistan Regional Government (KRG) of Iraq announced its intentions to hold a referendum for independence. At Kurdish independence rallies, Israeli flags were waved, le leading to the Iraqi parliamentary parliament unanimously voting to criminalize the flying of Israeli flags. Shafiq Kedar, a man, Kedar, a man who has translated several books about Israelis into Kurdish. Claims his books became bestsellers because Turks looked to Israel as an example of how to build a state for their people. And, and that's a history section on the Kurdish Jews. Today, the vast majority, I would say 98%, uh, um, live in Israel, mostly in Jerusalem at 200,000 to 300,000. And a significant number of Kurdish Jews may be living in Kurdistan, but this is not likely, as sources I've come across are kind of not reliable and can accurately tell the, accurately tell the population of Kurdish Jews in, Kurdish, in Kurdistan, if any.